get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. This is the Ribs and BK Podcast on 101 ESPN. NHL superstar Jamie Rivers, and now it's Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's Ribs and VK on 101 ESPN. So I had so many ideas of the way to start the show today. Major League Baseball yesterday, you got Rob Manfred coming on, ESPN talking about how I don't want to do this, but I'm willing to do this if I must. Yesterday, or earlier today, in fact, the NHL announces, you know what, Phase 3, we've got a date for you. July 10th, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Hockey players are going to be back on the ice. Woo. We can't start with either of those things. Go Blues! Oh, sorry, I got caught up in the moment there. It's 11.05, <laughs> your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. We have to start with our friend Alex Ferrario. Oh, yes. Uh-oh. A because manly, earlier man. this morning, I get a text... <laughs> That says, very simply, flat tire. Of course. Might be a couple of minutes late, but I'm on my way. Happened this morning, buddy. God. Well, let me start with this because, what was it? It was about two weeks ago we were talking about changing a flat tire. And, of course, BK mentioning that you wouldn't be able to, to handle Absolutely. it. Absolutely. At the moment we had those conversations, I knew Carmen was going to hit me at some point <laughs> because I said I could change a flat tire. I never thought about that at the time. How do, or, I'm going to have to, like, do something yeah. here. I'm yeah, I yeah. need Joe Boo <laughs> so that I, my, my tire doesn't flat. Go ahead, Find, find a way to eliminate that karma. But I knew it was going to happen. And, of course, I'm, I'm driving up here today, and you, you hit the roof. Like, oh, crap, what was that? You see your tire numbers start to deflate. and like, oh, great. Pulled over. Luckily, it happened off of the highway here on Olive. Okay, so you so were, like, right down the I street. I was right down the street. I was telling Ribs, luckily I could just pull into that hotel parking lot, and I'm like, I could change it here. Thank God. Um, but <laughs> I would have been walking to work. But, of course, this was at, like, 1015. I'm like, boy, I, I, it usually takes me about, like, an hour, hour and a half to change a flat tire. Like, you know, you got to pump that up and get the tire off. This is my not go as quick as possible so i'm like all right well let's just see what we can do here and got it out luckily i did it in like 45 minutes which the fastest i've ever done a flat tire in my life that's the most amazing thing i've ever heard (laughs) (laughs) jamie by the way i was gonna say let's read to this So, Colin, you, you texted this to Jamie, myself, and Colin, the board op for the first four hours of the day here on 101 ESPN. Fantastic at his job. You texted him as well. He said, all good. I can take over. If you need to miss the first couple of segments, we'll make it work. Jamie, in good nature, I'm sure, 
So do you want BK to come help you out? <laughs> I, buddy, I couldn't resist. I, t- I, I It came through. The text from Alex came through, and I was trying to type so fast that I like misspelled things like three, four times because I was like, this is the greatest moment. This is my Stanley Cup. You beat me to the punch, Ribs. I was going to say, BK, stay back where you are. Uh, Jamie's wife had her Super Bowl with the coronavirus happening right now, and as Jamie has said a few times on this show, she, in general, is very much into like making sure everything is sanitary, clean, germaphobe. Good for her. This was your Super Bowl. Oh, man. Jamie is the... His favorite thing in the world is getting off a good joke. Yeah. A good rib that gets you right. It, it hurts a little bit, but you know it's good nature, and you love him, and so you're willing to put up with it. This was his Super Bowl today. Dude, I, I typed that, I hit send, and I started giggling down the hallway here. And I swear, like, two of the sales staff turned their head like, what is he laughing at? He's, there's nobody with him. I just, it was a belly laugh, too. So. so yesterday, the funny thing about all of this and the timing of it all, I was on my way home from the station yesterday, going on 270 northbound. And the car in front of me, it was like a pickup truck, right? And they've got, they've got a trailer attached to it. Yeah. Well, the trailer, and again, I'm on the highway going, whatever, 60 miles an hour. And the trailer suddenly, you see it start to like kind of bounce up and down mm. a little bit. And I was like, what the hell is going oh, on? And you God. just hear this boom. And I was like, oh my God, was that a, what is going on? <laughs> The tire exploded. Yeah. Yep. Exploded on the highway. I don't know what happened, but it it was gone. Like, it, it disintegrated right in front of my very eyes, and suddenly the guy's just going on a rim on one side of his trailer. See the sparks coming out? Yeah, I, and he... I don't know if he didn't hear it, he didn't see it, but he just kept on going. And I was like, dude, you got to get off of the highway. I don't know what you need to do, but I know you can't be on this highway anymore. Final destination so style. I got a little story about I avoided the. I was able to avoid the, the tire. It was shot up right driving. Do you feel like you were in Fast and the Furious when you did that? I did. Final destination Slow-mo. meets Fast and Furious meets Mad, Ru- Mad Max Ru- Fury. <laughs> We had a those were words back in Canada. We had a jet ski and we had a little jet ski trailer. And the worst thing that can happen, and I can just imagine this, is you get a flat tire on your trailer because your car is built to have the spare kit and you can get through it. It may not always be easy. It may not be fun. It may be brutal, but you can get through it. It's pretty easy for me. With the the trailer though, and in the back roads of being in Canada up at the lake trailer goes boom now you got to change a jet ski tire and unfortunately the jet ski trailer tire the jet ski was on it if it wasn't on it you know it's not all that heavy you can kind of move it around jet ski was on it we had to like make shift with the car jack and some stuff uh, some rocks that we had found near the side of the road and prop it up and we got through it it wasn't pretty but hearing your story about a trailer i'm like oh my god that's a nightmare it's frightening dude dude when this when this tire shot up i was like Oh my God! This is this is basically the Matrix now. Yeah. Like I gotta find a way to like avoid all of these things. And I was like right behind him. It was it was them and then me going down the that's, highway. That's when you hope life has a slow mo button where you could press it and be like, okay, now I can dodge this. The Matrix. Yeah. I'm sure Jamie felt this while you were playing hockey at some point, where you're just like you're in the zone. I felt like that driving my Honda Accord, my 06 Honda Accord. <laughs> I, was, I, was like, I am a Formula One driver right now, and I'm going basically 200 miles an hour. There is no difference, and there's a wreck in front of me. 
I've got to avoid it. By the way, the the text line, Alex, I'm guessing you're ready for a new outfit after the the change in the tire. Well, thank God that I had uh, my pest control uniform in my car. Always ready. Because in in any case that they need me to help after work, I go out and work for them. So, yes, I had another collared shirt to put on because the one I had, grease stains, sweat stains. Ribs, you saw me. I walked in here and I sat in the other producer studio because it was air conditioning and I'm just sitting there panting saying, thank God it's cooler in here. pretty relaxed. So I'm not going to lie. I thought you'd be in there and, you know, the first thing you'd be like, come on, you know. Yeah. But now you were kind of chill. I was just worried I was going to miss work. That was my biggest thing. How far away were you? Uh, down by the the, uh, the 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 hotel down the street. So about five Drury minutes in. away. Yeah, yeah Drury in. So I, I had a, a I situation. Walked. I think it was my first, second, <laughs> second year here with the Blues. I had an apartment down off Kings Highway, downtown. And I had uh, my tires rotated on my big pickup truck. I had a Dodge Ram, even way back then and I'm driving back from the dealership that had just done this for me and whatnot and all of a sudden I'm on King's Highway all of a sudden I feel the truck kind of fall backwards like Mm. I'm like, what the heck was that? And then I see this tire bouncing past my driver's side window. Straight. I'm not even joking. Straight down King's Highway. And it's like just missing cars. Oh and now, now I can't get the, my truck off the road because it's a rear wheel. Right. So I have to, what I do is I put it in four-wheel drive. And now I got to drag my dumb truck over to the side of the road on the, the wheel well itself. <laughs> And and then I gotta go fish out my tire that's fully inflated and, hef- Frogger. and heavy as can be while playing human Frogger oh my on King's God. Highway. So yeah, when you talk about the tire going like you know jumping out of the way, yeah, I, I've never been so shocked. That was like slow mo for me. I'm driving all of a sudden, boom, and then boing, boing. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> Brutal. Needless to say, I was pretty pissed after because the place where I had brought it. Forgotten to tighten down all the lug nuts. Oh, my God. Oh, Riv wasn't happy that day. I was about to say, I've seen Jamie Rivers angry. I wouldn't have wanted to be those people. I would I would not have wanted to see Jamie Rivers after that incident. I can assure you of that. It wasn't pretty, I'll tell you that much. He's former NHL superstar Jamie Rivers. That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. So as I said in the beginning, uh, the NHL has agreed to Phase 3 training camps opening up on July the 10th. They still have to negotiate when Phase 4, you know, the actual games, will start. But for right now, we know we're about a month away from real training camps opening up, which means that the Blues would be back here in St. Louis. Also, the news of the day yesterday for Major League Baseball, and we're not going to spend too much time on this because, you know, I'm kind of sick of it. No, I'll spend another day on it. Rob Manfred said publicly there is a 100% chance there will be a baseball season, but he only is able to say that because he knows that if he has to, he will implement a 48-game season unilaterally. It's a biblical I want to get into that later in the show. Okay. We're going to get into that. I got a, I got a bone to pick with Rob Manfred. We will do that. It's a biblical bone. We will talk to Joey Vitale coming up at 1130. We're going to talk to Darren Oliver, who was on the 98 Cardinals and was on the Rangers in 2011 for Game 6 of the World Series, pitched for the Rangers in that game. We'll talk to Darren Oliver about both of those things coming up at 1230. Kyle McClellan was 15 in St. Louis in 98. We'll talk to him coming up at 1 o'clock. And the 1998 Cy Young Award winner Tom Glavin will stop by coming up at 1.15. Coming up next, I had a revelation listening to Big Mac earlier today on Carriker and Smallman. I'll tell you what that is next on 101 ESPN. 
We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. To hit a baseball is the toughest thing to do in sport alone. Uh, to, to, to try to break a record like that, to set yourself apart from each, uh, any, anybody in the history of the game as far as a single season home run record, uh, to where your mind can go, it's like, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty legit. Um, it's, it's crazy to think, um, that, that it's, uh, yeah, things have happened since then, yes, okay, I've, I've talked about that, but to understand that, um, where you can go with your mind and you have to hit a baseball, um, nothing, nothing is gonna, nothing could do that other than you, yourself, and your eyes and your mind. With former Blues defenseman Jamie Rivers and Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Big Mac earlier today on Character and Smallman. If you missed the interview, I would highly recommend going out to 101ESPN.com and checking it out because it was fantastic. He was on with them for 30 minutes this morning talking wow. about everything. The summer of 98, um, what it was like to be a Cardinal back then, his, his experience of the overwhelming feeling of, I need to break this record. Like, all of it. it. It was an unbelievable interview, and I had a bit of a revelation from listening to it. And it's very simple. Damn, I like that guy. Like, I really like that guy. Yeah. You just feel this overwhelming sense of, God, I, I would root for him today. Knowing what I know, I would still root for him. And I don't know what it is about him. I don't know what it is about his personality, but... He's just a guy that you walk away with. There's certain people that are likable, Jamie. Um, I'm not. <laughs> and I'm self-aware that of that. That is not true. That and, is not true, by on. the way. And Big Mac is. He's unbelievably likable. And we got we got a little bit of a sneak peek of what this documentary is going to be. We got we got a portion of a sent to us the other day. We're just lucky because we work sent to in, you in guys. Part. Of course, nobody <laughs> sent it to me. I'm not high enough in the pecking you order. You said the other day you don't get paid, remember? So I was able to watch some of it last night. <laughs> And I felt the same way watching the documentary last night as I did listening to that interview today of, God, I can completely understand. I was 15 at the, or I was seven at the time, so I, I wasn't truly aware of what was yeah, going yeah. on. But I can completely understand how people would have just been blown away by what was taking place that summer. And even now, looking back on it, I get why you still would say, yeah, that happened, and I loved every second of it. I get it. I really do. I lived it. Lived it firsthand. You know, playing for the Blues at that time, um, and Mark McGuire, I mean, this was right at the start of my career. I was probably third year in the league, and the city was just buzzing, man. Uh, Big Mac came to a couple of hockey games, came down to the locker room, sat, chatted with the guys, had a couple of cold beers in the trainer's room, and then we got to know him a little bit. We're not best friends. We didn't like take warm showers together by any means. Very good. He was around, and you're right. He's a guy. He's very likable. Very likable. It's so down to earth. I think that's the number one thing is, and I think we're seeing that throughout this week, is Sammy Sosa was the you know, the the hot shot, you know, whatever, he's out there in the media, loves playing it up, wants to be that rock star guy, and maybe he treated people eh, maybe not the best at times or wasn't the greatest teammate at times. Whereas Mark McGuire, you see, he reminds me just like a big country boy mm-hmm. who could really swing a bat and hit a baseball, and everybody wants to hang out with this guy. And I will say this, to, to the audio that we played coming back in where he talks about 
your, your mind and all these things that you have to do as a hitter. Yeah, okay. He took steroids. I get it. But so was half the league at that point, okay? And maybe half is extreme. A lot of guys were doing it. And there's only a handful that really came out or got caught. And other guys who were doing it were right beside Mac and couldn't do what Mac was doing. So to me, that's apples to apples at that time. Barry Bonds wasn't doing it that year. The only guys that were doing it were... McGuire and Sosa, and I know they had help with it, okay? But they were still making contact with the ball. They were still pushing pitchers into bad pitches, bad placement. They were clutch for smashing baseballs out of the stadium. The thing that I have always struggled with, and I will continue to struggle with, is when did he start? When was the first time that he decided, I'm, I'm going to take roids? And he's talked about it a little bit as, to, you know, he, he kind of experimented with it in like 90 and then stopped and then did so again after like 94. But it, it, he hit 32 home runs at USC in 1984. It's the all-time USC record for home runs in a single season. It's the second most that, at that point in time, any player's ever had in a college baseball season. He was a home run hitter in college. His rookie year, didn't he have like 49 home runs or something? He had the rookie record of 49 home runs. And so... McGuire was always going to be an unbelievable power hitter. That was never in question. The question was, could he break the record, right? And eventually he did. And yes, it was aided. But he talks a little bit in the documentary, and I don't want to spoil very much of it. But basically he says, there are some guys that don't want to admit that they were home run hitters. I always knew I was a home run hitter. And so we talked to Danny Mack, and he says to us earlier today, Jamie, listen, McGuire had the perfect home run swing. The way he swung the bat was just perfect for hitting homers. And so there was something about that. It's not just the steroids. It's not. He was an incredible power hitter, and he reached his full potential in part because of the steroids. No question about it. But I've always struggled with that. And then the other thing kind of to bring the two together is the way that we now look at these guys, right? McGuire is more seen as a guy that we have, I wouldn't say forgiven entirely, But I think the majority of people have kind of grown to be okay, more or less, with what had happened. And they're at least accepting of what happened with McGuire. Don't think it's that way with Bonds. I don't think it's that way with Lance Armstrong. And I think a big reason why is because of what I felt in that interview. And what I'm sure a lot of our audience feels whenever they hear Big Mac talk is, that guy's likable. He's contrite about what happened. Meanwhile, Barry Bonds, Lance Armstrong, it's the exact opposite. Those guys are not likable. And so we don't forgive them for their previous actions because of the way that we feel about them personally. And I think that that gets attached to how we feel about the time as much as it does about how we feel about the person. I am so over the steroid thing. I don't care. I don't care. And I'm going to go back to it again. He wasn't alone in doing it. And I know Ken Griffey Jr. was right in the race at the same time and, and to, to my knowledge, has never had any help from steroids or anything else. And I understand that. But to me, Mark McGuire and those guys were hitting baseballs, and there's so much more to it than just raw power. There's all the timing involved and just so much more. And we got a, a text here that I, I probably should have touched on a little bit uh, from the 636. Says, Jamie, were you shocked? How big he was when you met him. This guy was a monster. He was, I think he's like 6'5", and he was just, like, he was wide. He was like a wall walking through 
the locker room. And uh, my wife and I were actually, I don't know if we were married yet or engaged, but anyways, we were at Morton's down in Clayton. And we were eating dinner, and McGuire came in with his then fiance at the time, and uh, his second fiance. But he was huge. Sat down, and it was just amazing because the whole restaurant was just like, oh my God. And all the whispers, like, there's McGuire, there's McGuire. Hey, look, 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 look. But he was a good dude. He just sat down like no big deal. Didn't have a special room. Didn't have anything like that. Just sat amongst the people who were there eating dinner and enjoying himself. So, yeah, he, to me, I'm over the steroid thing. I'm forgiving Mac. And it, I'm, forgi- I'm forgiving him because he wasn't the only one doing it. And I, I absolutely believe that this guy should get Hall of Fame consideration at some point. I don't think you have a big star like this. Um, and even in Bonds's situation. I know that that might be crazy too, but you don't have guys that are this polarizing in the baseball world and not have them in the Hall of Fame. Mark McGuire created a generation of fans. Barry Bonds created a generation of fans. Listen, we can all dislike him now, and we I think a lot of people disliked him in the moment, frankly, because he wasn't the easiest guy to like. But, like, I was in Kansas City at the time growing up there, and it wasn't like here in St. Louis where you have this team that is just, it is a part of the culture. The Royals at that point were terrible, just awful. Like, one of the worst teams in all of baseball consistently. Barry Bonds was the reason why I started becoming a baseball fan, because of what he was able to do in the early 2000s. That 2003, 2004, 5 run was unbelievable from Barry Bonds. And it was the same thing here in 98 and previously with Mark McGuire. They created the, this entire generation of fans, and so there is something to that. The, the reason why we're going to have this documentary on Sunday for Long Gone Summer, and it's Long Gone Summer Week here on 101 ES is because of what they were able to do for the game. And yes, there is a complicated history that comes with that now, but it doesn't take away from what that did for the game of baseball, for what that did to push things forward. As Chip Carey said, to the trajectory of baseball was changed by what happened that summer. So I, listening to them this morning, or listening to him this morning with Carriker and Smallman, it just it, it clicked for me. Like, God, what, what a guy, what a person that I would root for and continue to do so still today. I, I hope he eventually becomes a manager in baseball because of the, the type of person that he appears to be. I, I'll root for that, go- that dude 100% of the time. With former Blues defenseman Jamie Rivers and Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. Let's check in with our friend Joey Vitale. We'll do that next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Former Blues defenseman and NHL superstar Jamie Rivers. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's Rivs and BK on 101 ESPN. Let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Happy to be joined by my favorite guy, Joey Vitale. He's a Blues analyst for 101 ESPN, and he joins us each and every week here on Rivs and BK. Joey, how you doing today, my friend? <laughs> Riv, what are you paying BK to intro you like that? I mean, listen, it's fine when he says former blue defense, but you can get away with that. But okay, hold on. Superstar? Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, Joey, but here's where I go with it. And I, and I came in today and I had a little bit of a bone to pick with the world at that point. Is we run an ad on here. It's a great ad. It's a great cause. But there's a certain current NHL player that before they he goes through the ad read, they say NHL superstar so-and-so. And I'm like, wait a minute. I know this guy, 
And he's not a super. If he's a superstar, then I am classified as a superstar. So I was like, you know what? If that's the, if that's the measuring stick, this is what I want from now on. I want to be introed as a former NHL superstar. Joey, did you see what Jamie Rivers did in the ninety nine two thousand season? I, I, you know what? No, I think I was just uh, hitting pre-puberty at that age, so I wasn't following the Blues all that well. He he was with the Islanders at that point. He had one goal and 16 assists. Just a playmaker. Yeah. I mean, what more could you ask for? <laughs> all right, well, if Riz is a superstar, then next week you better intro me as former Penguin superstar Joe Vitale. we, we got to keep this thing even across the board. I'm I can okay do that. that I'd be happy to do that for you, Joe. Guys, not to jump in on sorry, not to jump in on this. I I just want to say we used to label Joe Vitale as the guy who was traded straight up for Pavel Datsuk. That's true too. That was a big trade. I mean Datsuk had some great seasons after that too. I didn't wanna I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to say that, but it, it is true. It is true. So, Joey, earlier this morning I got a text from our mutual friend Alex Ferrario as he was coming into the studio and he says basically, hey guys, uh, might be a little bit late, just had a flat on the side of the road. Now, oh, Joey, yeah. when that happens that to you... <laughs> yeah, I, I used that one in eighth grade. So, when that happens to you, Joey Vitale, what do you do? What's the initial reaction? What, do, what, what, is, what is Joey Vitale doing whenever you get a flat tire? Uh, when I get a flat tire, usually I call my dad still, you know what I mean? Now I know how to change a flat, but my dad, he's, he's Mr. Fix it. And he is like, he, he was never an Eagle scout, but he's like just super prepared. I'll never forget getting a flat on a country road about seven or eight years ago. And he shows up, he goes, here, put this on. It's like this yellow, like, like neon vest with like flashers. He starts taking out, what are those things called where you, you spark them? Uh, not Roman candles, but uh, he gets like six flares out of the back of his truck. He starts lighting these flares and he starts stabbing them into the asphalt. I didn't even know flares had like a nail on the other end, but he's stabbing them into the tar to basically direct traffic around us. Uh, so he, he is Mr. Safety. Uh, it's funny you bring up the flat tire thing, but uh, when I was a senior at CBC, two of my buddies, it's a true story, they overslept. They overslept for the final exam, right? They both come running in late. But, hey, Mr. So-and-so, we're so sorry. We, we, we uh, Carpool, we, we flat tire. Said, okay, no problem at all. No problem at all. We'll make it up after school. So I swear to God, the teacher says, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. He takes both students at the end of the school day. He lets them make it up. He puts them on different classrooms, different classrooms, right? And the, and the exam was one question. Which tire was it? Oh my oh, god! Wow! <laughs> Holy crap! Isn't that brilliant? Of course they got it wrong because they're a bunch of knuckleheads, <laughs> and uh, they both ended up failing. But yeah, that was pretty sweet. Oh my god! That teacher was an, a former FBI agent. That's for incredible. Sure. <laughs> now, Joey, was it actually friends of yours, or is that just the old thing? Like, hey, I have a friend at one time. Is this a Joey Vitale story we're talking about here? <laughs> You know, I honestly, I didn't have too many friends in high school. Uh, I, I, didn't have, I, I didn't have a lot of memories in high school. People were always like, people can't believe, you know, St. Louis is a, such a big high school 
town. A lot of my buddies still keep in such good contact with high school friends, but I, I never really had that because, you know, you know how it is, Riz. Like, growing up, we just, I was gone every weekend. Chicago, Detroit, Minnesota, camps, tournaments, they were everywhere. No one came to St. Louis to play. We had to go everywhere. I was traveling all the time, and I'd always show up on Monday morning just extremely jealous of all the cool partying and tag stories that I just missed out on. I just, I didn't have a social life. Yeah, you know, that was the number one thing, and I tell my boys that, and I, I, when I tell, I guess when I tell my life story to my boys when they ask questions, I'm like, high school was a blink for me because I was playing, you know, I left from, I left home, 15 years old, went off, played junior hockey, was away from home, um, you know, and you didn't get to go to those parties, you didn't get to go to the dances, the proms, and all this kind of stuff. Look, you miss a whole bunch, you sacrifice a lot along the way in the journey to try and get to the NHL, so uh, I always tell my boys and my kids to stop and smell the roses every now and then and try to take in every moment because it's going to be gone quickly. You're exactly right, man. And I, I literally went to one dance in high school. It was my freshman homecoming. Her, the name of the girl was Jackie. She was a sweetheart. I have one dance picture, and my brother still pulled out and laughed at me every now and then. I had the worst acne. I had braces. I did the rainbow color braces. I never know why. I, why, do, why do people go different colors? I had braces. I had a bald head. I was loaded up with acne. I was like 40 pounds overweight. Uh, that, that's one picture. We all had that one picture, guys. That's the one picture that cannot feed me. That's incredible. We've all been there. We have to see that picture now, Joe. We don't have to put it out there for the public, but you have to send me that picture just for point of reference on this one. I'm going to send it to you guys. The boys in the locker room got a hold of it, and they just roasted me. And, Rivs, you know this better than anyone. Uh, talk about building character. I always tell people, you know, they ask, were you ever stressed? Were you ever nervous for games? The only time I was ever nervous, and I think for any hockey player, I'll tell you the same thing. Hockey players, the only time you're ever really nervous is the day after you get a haircut and you enter the <laughs> locker room. Or, brought, or buy a brand new suit and you think it's awesome and you want to walk in. Yeah. Like, I mean, talk about getting a haircut and the next day, I'm like, God, I'm try wearing a hat. But it's amazing, those veterans. Even though you got a hat on, they sniff it out. What's going on? What's going on underneath your hat? I'm like, oh, nothing, Pascal. It's just, it's just hair. He goes, let me see. And he's like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Come here. Check it out. Look at Toby. He got he to tighten up. And I was like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Joey, really? what they do to you? Did you get on sale? Like, they just roast you. We're talking with Joey Vitale, a blues analyst for 101 ESPN. You can hear him on This Week in Hockey with Joey, Alex, and Curbs each and every Tuesday from 6 to 7 o'clock. All right, Joey. Uh, there was some news this this morning, some real legitimate NHL news. It sounds like phase three is going to begin on July 10th. That's when all of the teams can start their training camps. Uh, what do you think about this? It sounds like hockey's coming back and we're going to be able to get these training camps started here pretty soon. Yeah, I think so. Again, it's it steps in the right direction, guys. Uh, July 10th seems to be the date now of when they're going to start this camp. Um, phase one, two, and three, to me, um, they look all really good on paper, and I think they're kind of relatively painless. And I don't, I don't mean, mean to say that out of disrespect to the league and what the players union have done because they've done a lot. But one, two, and three, pretty straightforward. Um, phase four is going to be the tricky one. This is going to be the hardest one as far as the negotiations and trying to figure out how this is going to work, where is it going to work, uh, what does it look like when it is going to work. So this is where the negotiations are really going to kind of really intensify between the players. And, again, we mentioned this last week, and this is all I've really heard from all the players I've talked to around the league, is their biggest concern right now is what does this mean personally for them and their family? 
Um, let's say, for example, we do a hub in Edmonton, which I've heard is actually getting a lot of buzz right now. I, I think the league would love to save some money with the exchange rate to go to Canada. So let's say Edmonton works out well. Well, what does that mean for Tyler Bozak and his wife and his children? Ryan O'Reilly just had a baby. Are they allowed to come? Are they allowed supposed to quarantine by themselves? What if there's a family emergency? What if someone needs to leave that hub city? Are they allowed to come back and play? Um, Tessie, players like, well, if I get tested every single day, what if, what if I test positive, but I feel great? Am I allowed to play? But I sit out for 14 days. What if you play in the Stanley Cup final and we're playing the Washington Capitals and Ryan O'Reilly test positive for the COVID, but he feels like a machine. It's game seven. Does he have to sit out? Those are all the kind of questions that um, are very, very hard to answer. And this is where the negotiations are really going to kind of uh, dictate uh, the pace of what this is going to move in uh, to understand what this bubble is going to look like. Joey, how hard do you think it's going to be for the players when they come back? And, you know, look, I, I try to imagine in my head what it would be like playing in a Stanley Cup final in a Game 7, and there's no fans around. And I just have a hard time envisioning how that would go, and I don't know how you feel about it, but I think for the first handful of games, it's going to feel for the guys like they're out there playing like pickup hockey or beer league hockey. I'm just wondering how much that's going to impact certain teams. Jamie, I think it's going to, I think it's, it's a good question. I think it's going to affect teams in that first game. And and I'm, I'll never forget, the, I think it was a 2013 lockout where we were skating in Pittsburgh, seven, eight of us guys for months. January, I remember James Neal, uh, who's now playing with the Calgary, excuse me, Edmonton Oilers. Um, he shows up after being gone for six months. It sounds like the league maybe finds something. So a lot of players start filtering the town. We had a skate just like normal. And James Neal, literally, on that first shift, was like four second. He finishes Brooks Orpik in the corner. And we were all hooting, hollering, laughing on the bench. But everyone's game, boom, they like skyrocketed. I'll never forget that moment. Like, hey, let's get going here. Let's get going. So I think to answer your question, why I bring that story up, I think a lot of teams are going to, hey, let's kind of feel this thing out in this first game. But I'm telling you right now, as soon as, as, soon as someone gets smacked in the mouth or punched in the nose, or as soon as there's some any kind of like, um, I guess just any kind of altercation in the corner or someone blocking a shot. To me, every player at that moment, it's just gonna, it's going to click on like a light switch. They're going to be like, "Let's go." These are competitive guys. It, it's in their DNA. They wouldn't be in this position if they weren't competitive. This is not going to be a summer skate. This is going to be some really good hockey. I got a really good feeling about the intensity of this hockey. Now it's going to lose a lot of luster because there's no fans in the building. It's going to lose a lot of energy, of course. But from a from a hockey perspective i'm telling you right now these guys are excited they're ready to go people are asking what's july 10th camp going to be look like well i I don't know for those guys but if it were for me i hated camp i hated training camp because you start in september it's four weeks of a grind you got like eight preseason games where you basically get your your bell rung uh, every single day and then you got a whole season to look forward to this is completely different these guys are starting on july 10th there's no exhibition games they're going to warm up for basically two weeks and then you're telling me we're going right into the Stanley Cup playoffs? Like, I'd be, I'd be happier than a dog with two dinghies, if you're asking me, honestly. So why this, I, for these guys, they're going to be all jacked up and ready to go. <laughs> Joey, you're the best. Thank you. The absolute best. All right, boys. Have a good day. <laughs> you too. That's Joey Vitale, Blues Analyst for 101 ESPN. We'll talk with you next week, Joey. He's, He's gone. gone. He was done with you, BK. <laughs> he was a dog with two dinghies. He's out of there. Thank you for that drop too, Joe. Like, just thank you for that because I will use that in every broadcast he for the rest of his life. There. Of course, he did. That's yeah. why he did a mic drop right after yeah. that. He was like, "Yeah, see, see you later, boys. boys. <laughs> I'm out. Tip your waitress."
<laughs> just nailed the landing. He did. Just, just stuck the landing perfectly. So I always impressive. enjoy our conversation with Joey Vitale. Uh, we've got some questions and answers. 65780 is air comfort service tax line for questions and answers. If you want to get some in, we'll get to some of ours next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. He's former Blues superstar defenseman Jamie Rivers. I'm Brandon Kylie. That's Alex Ferrario. It's Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. Get your questions in on the Air Comfort Service text line at 65780. All right, Jamie, there was a question that we wanted to get in from the text line from the 636. So, Jamie, if your son cheats on a test at school because everybody else is doing it, are you okay with that? What would that be teaching your kids? Of course, they're referencing Mark McGuire and the discussion that we were having and you said hey listen mcguire wasn't the only one that was doing this not to rationalize it but to explain it a little bit what would your response be to that okay so here's the only way i can put it in and is if you were given a test if if we're going to talk about my kids going to school and taking a test and cheating on it if the teacher gave you the answers or open book test and you chose not to use them that's your fault Okay, and I'm not saying that getting the answers same as taking steroids, but let me dive deeper into it. NASCAR, they have all these regulations now on tire size, inflatable, the weight inside of the car. Well, guess what? They have that because at one point everybody was cheating. Do we go back and strip titles from Dale Earnhardt, one of the most popular guys, because he got busted for cheating? All these guys who were, they're not even cheating at the time. It was legal. They made rules after the hockey curve. We have an illegal curve now. Bobby Hull, 500 goals in the NHL. He used an illegal hockey stick. Are those goals washed out? They're not because at that time in history, it was not illegal. Now, I'm not condoning using steroids or any kind of supplement like that, but at the time, it wasn't illegal. So that's my point. It's not that I'm condoning it or want my kids to cheat on a test. It's just the fact that it wasn't a rule at the time. Well, and kids aren't competing in school like you're 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 striving for something you're trying to achieve something in baseball these are grown men competing with each other these are guys whose salaries and lives yep. based solely off of their production on the field in one bad season your livelihood could be over so those are two completely different areas it doesn't excuse it again of course not but it does help to explain it 65780 is air comfort service tax line for questions and answers. Guys, did you know that today is the 18-year anniversary of the premiere of American Idol? The 18-year anniversary of the premiere of American Idol. Of course, that season, Kelly Clarkson would go on to be your first winner of American Idol. What Who happened in the final with her? I don't Justin remember. Justin Guarini? Yeah! Wow. I loved American Idol. Get I watched that it. Man of Soda. I watched that show all the way up to the season that Chris Daughtry was on it, which I think was the year Carrie Underwood was on it. And then I yep. kind of fell off of it. But yeah, Carrie Underwood was the winner that season. Yes, yeah. she was. First year of Ryan Seacrest's terrible hairdo. <laughs> and his co-host. Do you remember the co-host's name? Brian Dunkelman. Brian Dunkelman, the man whose life was ruined because Seacrest was liked better. Well, and he turned down an opportunity. They offered both yeah. of them, like, these big TV contracts. And to turned stay. it down. And Dunkelman, was, he was a comedian. He still is, but he was a comedian at the time. And he's like, this is not the way I want to be viewed. Yeah. I want to be a comedian and do movies and do stuff over here. Wow. And Seacrest runs. Seacrest is getting paid, like, $25 million a year for American Idol. And Dunkelman is living in an apartment. everything now. I mean, Seacrest does everything. everything. I, mean, I actually stories. think he's a robot. <laughs> okay, because... He might be. 
He's everywhere. You turn on the radio, he's doing a countdown. You turn on TV, he's hosting a TV show. Then he's on American Idol. Then he's over here doing something else. Then he's dropping the ball in New York on New Year's. It's like, dude, what is going on here? Right. What happened to shows like that? Because now we've still got the masked singer, but that's really the only one. America's got talent's pretty big. But But they got the voice. They've got so many of them now. But what what I mean is like they they don't have the same buzz. American Idol, when it first came out, I remember you would listen to the uh, the radio the next morning, and the number one story would be who got booted off of American Idol, who's going to advance, who's going to be the winner this season. And it ended up being that way with whenever America's Got Talent. Um... There was the the dancing one, dancing with oh, the stars. So you think you can dance early on? So you think you, there was like fifteen different shows that were all basically the same thing with different talents. I think the difference they just they, they've kind of gone to the wayside. I think now. the difference is though that people saw the careers that came from American Idol. Like think about it: Kelly Clarkson was a superstar when she won. Carrie Underwood a superstar when she won. Ruben Stutter not so much, but he still was pretty big at the time. The other shows didn't really have that. Like when you won America's Got Talent, you got a show in Vegas, but it just depends if you're going to be a superstar or not. At least for the first five years, three of those five winners became superstars. The real superstar of that show, guys, let's be honest, was Simon Cowell. Oh, God, yeah. Okay, and And I think that... The fact that he's not around in the last handful of years or two or three seasons of American Idol, I think it's really hurt the brand. And I know they went in a different area, a different route because he was kind of crude. Like, not crude. He was very brash. He's with, in some trouble now yeah, as well. Yeah, I know. And and maybe that's just because it's a personality trait of his. But nonetheless, I still think that he made the show because... When you saw the comments, you know, it was just like, fuck. Like, and yeah, I was always interested in what he had to say, and it was entertaining. And now it's still a great show, and, you know, it's on in the background. But yeah, it's, I think that the watering down of all the shows with so many other spin off type shows has taken the luster off that one big entity. And they took all the personalities away. I mean, you take Simon out, you take Randy out, then you took Paul out. I mean, you were losing personality after personality. What was your favorite reality TV show back in the day? Like early 2000s ish time. Hmm. Reality oh, show. I can't even think You guys ever watch it. Room Raiders on MTV? Oh, yeah. No, that was... Oh, yeah. I mean, I know of the show. Yeah, that I was good. I didn't really watch it. Um, My Ride think. was a good one. I don't even know if that'd be conti- considered a reality, but that was another good one That to was watch. a really good one on MTV. I used to always want... Like, I drove around a POS car for, like, five or six years hoping that something would happen. Yeah, point of sales car. Okay. Yeah. That's how that's labeled, right? Yeah. Just like BBC's broadcast, British Broadcasting Company. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, we learned that yesterday. Same, yes, same exact thing. All right, <laughs> final question for you. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Do you guys know that you don't have to cut off the stem on your strawberry before you eat it? Like you can eat the stem? So the yes. green part. Yes. You're allowed to eat that? Did you know that? Did you no. have to clarify that the green part was the stem? Well, I'm just clarifying I that. I feel like it was a fair question. Yeah. You, you do? That's, yeah, that's I don't fair. know if that's a stem so much as it's like the salad on the side of your plate. You know, I'm not sure. That's a good point. But Did uh, you know that you can eat that? I have personally never eaten that. Uh, so obviously I had no idea you could eat that. Tell us why, BK. Why what? Why, why you can't can? eat it? Because it's not, it's not like... It's not unedible. Oh, I thought there was like some medical breakthrough. I was un... No, there's a story that I was reading this morning on the big lead. The the title of the story. You don't have to cut off the stem before you eat them. So I went into it and read it. And it's basically saying like, there's no real reason why we do this. 
Like I, I don't know how it started or it what probably the tastes genesis like crap. was. I'm going to go home today. We have strawberries at home. I'm going to take a strawberry and I'm going to eat that sucker whole. And I'm going to tell you what I think of it. I think it's going to affect the taste of my strawberry. Someone needs to try and eat a banana peel. Let's find out if you can do that. I bet you can. I bet you can eat the peel. There are also people that suggest that you can eat the shells on sunflower seeds and I peanuts. Do that. I do that. Well, not the peanuts, but the sunflower seeds. You do? Mm-hmm. I used to just chew them up and eat them. Do you get stitched up the next morning? No. Say, that seems probably painful. Why, probably why I have body issues. Hmm. Huh. huh. Yeah, I, I'm not eating the seeds. I have seen guys crunch them down and swallow yeah. them, and I, I have, I'm just like, eh. The peanuts one are the one that always, like, you're a monster, but sunflower seeds I used to do. Did you say peanuts? Peanuts. Okay, just checking. Peanuts. I just wanted to double check. Six one eight. shouldn't say that slow. Did you know that strawberries aren't actually considered to be berries scientifically? I didn't. Well, we got to fact check our 618 here. Come on now. You got to attach something to it. I know the text line's never wrong. BK, is this your girlfriend Kara texting? (laughs) Strawberries are filled with worms? We, so the funny thing is I've seen multiple videos of that now. Kara was on the front line of this. We were your headline news. You guys get everything stolen from you. For sure. Uh, I was unaware of this until Kara had seen a video and she tried the experiments at home. Now there are people that are doing this with salt water where they're putting the strawberries into a bucket and they've got the salt water and they're adding vinegar to bring Bring out some of these worms and the bugs. Okay, wait. That, are, they, are they saying that worms are in every strawberry? I think they're saying that they can be in but strawberries. But how small are they? Like, uh, otherwise, like... they're. Fr- I've seen a couple of videos that if, yeah. if they're real, and I want to say that on the front end, if they're real, um, they're large. They're large enough that you should probably notice them while eating. I'd like to see the berries before they put them in the water or the worm, because a worm, to me, you'd notice a difference in that strawberry. Like, yeah. you pick it up, it'd be a little softer, and like it wouldn't be you'd something. You'd think so, right? Yeah, you'd think so. From the 314, the seed shells thing sounds like it would hurt on the back end. It did. I can clarify Ferrario that. was on the IR for like three it days. It, it, it did hurt. He had to sit on a I don't do that anymore. Ring. I don't do that anymore. That's Jamie Rivers and Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's Rivers and BK on 101 ESPN. So Jordan Bennington has one thing, one thing. That sets him apart from the rest of the league. And we'll tell you what that is next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. To the Rask, over to the far wing, and here comes Tory Krug. Hits it in, the trailer, the shot on, and a glove save by Bennington as he lunged down in a hurdler stretch position and got the glove over the left pad, and he pulled the puck in. With former Blues defenseman Jamie Rivers and Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. So I sat down this morning, and I go through my daily reading. Of course, I always pull up The Athletic. And they had an article today with former NHL goaltender. I'm going to butcher this name. I'm going to allow you to say it. Steve Valaket. Valaket. Actually, a teammate of Steve Valaket's back in my last year junior hockey. Both of us played for the Sudbury Wolves together. Really? Canadian? Yes, sir. Thought so. Smart guy? You know what? It's so crazy. He was always a smart, like, well thought out kid. He's a huge guy, like 6'5, six, 6'6 six, six as a goalie. And. You know, to see him now excel like on MSG and doing all these shows and all, it's not surprising. It, it's actually kind of awesome. But yeah, I, I remember when Steve came in as like a sixteen or seventeen year old goalie at the time, and 
Now, look, he's coming up. He's big time now. You guys are both superstars now. Both superstars, yes. So, Steve Valacat was uh, asked a few questions about, you know, goaltending in the modern era and what sets certain guys apart and what he looks for whenever he's watching these goaltenders around the league. And he got into a few different things, but one thing that really stood out to me was a section in his column that highlighted Jordan Bennington. He was talking about goal differential and expected goal differential. And I know that might sound crazy, but basically it is how many difficult shots you face and how many goals you allowed. So it's easier than it sounds. just a fancy word, fancy metric for it. To break it down just a little more, it's basically identifying a high-quality scoring chance or a low-quality scoring chance. Jordan Bennington, according to this article, ranked third in the NHL in expected goals differential this season. Another interesting thing from this article, Jordan Bennington, whenever the other team had a one-man advantage, so the goalie goes off, they bring on an extra skater, he was number four in expected goals differential. So there was a little bit of analysis. He says, five on five, up one goal. St. Louis is good at clamping down, not giving up many quality scoring opportunities. And why is this important? Because Bennington is one of the league's best at stopping the shots he should stop in those conditions. Bennington shuts the door when the team is up by a goal, doesn't get rattled, and doesn't give up the bad goal. Basically what he's saying is there's a lot of goalies you don't know how they're going to respond whenever they get into a big situation. That was never in question, and it remains not a question for Jordan Bennington. He's the guy that if you've got a low-quality shot, Bennington's going to save it. He gave up two all season, two low quality shots for goals. That's an incredible thing to have as your goaltender, specifically as a coach, because now you know exactly what you need to scheme for. You know what your goalie can and cannot do, what his best quality is, which is if there's something that gets inside that's a low quality shot. He's not going to give that up. The problem is those high danger shots, and that's a problem for every goalie around the league. So when I was reading this, I just thought to myself, like, this is what the Blues were missing. Jake Allen, one of his biggest issues for years, one of the biggest issues with the Blues goaltending for years was that they weren't stopping these low-quality shots. And now that you have Jordan Bennington, we saw it last year in the playoffs, and we hope that we see it again this year in the playoffs. This is what you're able to expect each and every night out. So this is what it did, okay, for the St. Louis Blues, is it absolutely changed the outcome for that team once Jordan Bennington became the goalie. And what I mean by that is no longer... Were you giving up tricklers through the pads or through the arm? You weren't giving up those bad goals. And Craig Berube and his staff and Doug Armstrong at that point were able to tailor make a hockey club that was going to limit those great chances. And we see how hard the Blues work, right? They've always got guys on the back check. They're clogging up the middle of the ice. They're blocking shots. And everything ends up, for the most part, on the outsides. And if it's not, it's kind of a low percentage shot. Q, Jordan Bennington, now, who's not going to give up that goal? So you have a really great recipe as a hockey club at that point to where, as a coach, all you got to do is make sure your guys are playing hard and playing responsible. That's it. I don't care how good you are right now. If we can limit the other team's goals overall, but certainly the soft ones, I know I have enough talent to score one, two, maybe three in a game here up front, and then we can buckle it down on the back end. we got a goalie that the saves he's supposed to make, guess what? He's making them. So this is what uh, transpired last year when Bennington came onto the scene, and the Blues at that point, Alex, 
they were able to transform into this juggernaut that ran right through the NHL and got a Stanley Cup. A hundred percent, Ribs. And to your point, I specifically remember talking with a couple different Blues players last year once Bennington had that shutout against Philadelphia and he started to play really strong for the Blues. And they said it, it feels like we don't have to overplay ourselves, meaning you know you don't have to do extra out there. And this specifically refers to the defenseman of where you feel like you know you have to be in the right spot at the right time. You can't move the puck up. You can't jump up into play. You can't do extra because you need to be where you need to be. And that affects the Blues offense. Rivs, you know this better than anybody. Their, their whole game revolves around moving the puck north to south. Ken Hitchcock used to talk all the time about east-west hockey was bad hockey. When you had Bennington, there was a certain comfort level for those guys to just continue to push north, and they knew that their goalie was going to take care of what he needed to take care of as long as we take care of what we need to take care of. The Blues, four-check, offensive zone, defensive scheme, however you want to word it, they're able to play a style where the D-man can join the attack. And we've seen that from the very beginning of Craig Berube's tenure here as interim head coach last year. He's wanting the D to join the attack, join the attack, join the attack. Well, you can't do that if you don't have two things. If you don't have forwards that are committed to backing you up as a defenseman and being there as another layer of defense, you can't send your D. It's just going to be outnumbered situations all over the place. And if you don't have a goalie that can save you in some of those circumstances to where you end up with a chance against or high quality, low quality, anything at all, you can't do it then either. So that, to me, is is where it separates the Blues. And it's able to let them drive to the net offensively. Heck, how many times do we see Petrangelo, Pareko, heck, even Gunnarsson down below the goal line in the offensive zone? You know, like, you don't see that ordinarily. So, and to our texter, one of our texters, I don't know if they're dogging on Jordan Bennington, but they said, still waiting to hear what Bennington does better than everyone else. Yeah, to clarify, I should have mentioned this. He's allowed one low percentage goal on 129 shots this season. That's the fewest of anybody in the league. So that's where the number there one comes in. He's number one in that. He does that better than anybody else in the league. It's 12-14. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. So, speaking of the Blues goaltending, Jamie, Earlier today, I was listening again to Randy and Michelle, and Jeremy Rutherford came on. He has an article coming out tomorrow of the best untold stories from Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. I'll let you hear one of those next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. On ESPN. With former Blues defenseman Jamie Rivers and Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's Rivs and BK on 101 ESPN. I was listening to Randy and Michelle this morning. It's a great weekday show. You can hear from 7 to 10 a.m. right here on 101 ESPN. And they were talking to Blues insider Jeremy Rutherford. And JR is writing a great piece, what I assume is going to be a great piece. Always great. For The Athletic tomorrow about the untold stories from Game 7 of last year's Stanley Cup Final. He was able to share one of those stories earlier today. And, Jamie, I don't think that you were able to hear this beforehand. So I want to play this for Jamie to get his reaction of what the players were doing the night before Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. 
Well, first of all, I was telling my daughter, I'm sorry, I'm going to miss your birthday, but I'm going to Game 7 for the Stanley Cup. But uh, I think, uh, you know, you thought that they had a, a really good shot because they had played so well on the road. And, hey, I'm going to give you a sneak peek preview to my article uh, tomorrow. I'm going to give you one quick story. Uh, I called as many Blues from that Stanley Cup roster as possible the past couple weeks and, and asked them to give me one untold story from Game 7, the day of Game 7, uh, and, and I'm going to have that tomorrow at The Athletic, and awesome. I'll, give you one sto- I'll give you one story. Jake Allen told me a couple days ago, he goes, night before Game 7, we're in Boston. You think we're going to get a healthy dinner and go to bed early about 8.30, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, they have a team suite at the top of the hotel where we all went, and I want to say that when I looked at the clock, I looked around the team suite, and we were all drinking wine, drinking beers, eating ice cream, and it was 10.30 at night, the night before Game 7. He goes, I finally went to bed at 11 o'clock. I looked up at the ceiling, and I said, this team is going to win Game 7. We are so relaxed and so confident. And that's one story I had never heard of, and and so there's a a lot more where that came from uh, in tomorrow's story with the untold stories. Have you heard that before, Jamie? Yes, I've heard that. Now, not from Jake Allen, uh, from other people that were relaxing in that suite. And it was told to me in a way that was just kind of along the same lines as JR's communicating it is that they're just chilling, you know? And, and even the players said that while we were sitting there relaxing and just what it was kind of surreal to look back at it now because they literally didn't feel like they had any pressure on them. And it was weird, like you know. And that player was like, "Think about that: fifty years of a city waiting for that moment, and they're sitting at the top of the suite the night before Game Seven when all of us couldn't sleep. All of us were sitting back, like, oh my God, tomorrow's Game Seven. Oh my God, are they going to be able to do this?' And the Blues, meanwhile, are eating ice cream and drinking wine and beer up at the top of a suite. But that's that's why, what separated them. That's why they were so good on the road because that was that was their team on the road." They could shut it down. This is, again, what separated them from other Blues teams in history. Even though we had some great teams with great guys and we were a pretty tight-knit group, this group has something special. And that's Craig Berube never reigned on their parade, never intervened. Look, these guys are doing it. He had total confidence in the leadership group that these guys are focused all the time. And that's the key. You know, it's like a work environment, right? So if you're working at a place where you just love going to work, you love the people you work with, and you can't wait to get there every day. I can't imagine what that's like. Exactly, right? (laughs) Trust me, I know. Now, that being said, if you have that kind of environment, like you've got a little more jump in your step each day, and you're going to be performing at a higher level because you're happy to be there. It's not problematic to you. So the Blues, same story to be told there. They love going to the rink, hanging out, being together in the locker room, being together in the suite. So that's why that ended up turning out the right way. These guys loved each other. Want to be hanging out, sipping beers, wine, whatever you're doing. Night before Game 7, just kind of knowing, looking around the room going, I know this guy has my back. I know this guy's going to bring it tomorrow. I know that guy's going to be incredible tomorrow. We, I, I we, think, sorry, I was going to say, I think that's why they, they, they got crushed in game six of the Stanley Cup final because there wasn't that going out before. You were home with your families and you were kind of focusing on that, but it was hard to kind of build that camaraderie, whereas game five and game seven, you're on the road and that confidence is there because you have no concerns. You have no responsibilities. It's just guys in a hotel room. We always talk about the intangible that is team chemistry and how it manifests itself within a team. That's it. 
that that is team chemistry personified right there. What mm-hmm. we're talking about right now, I've got your back, you've got my back, so much so that I don't have to worry about it the night before the game. I'm not worried about it. I know we're going to be fine when we get on the ice. Right now, let's all go up to the suite. Let's grab a beer. Let's grab some wine. Let's gre- uh, eat some ice cream. Of ice cream. And let's just <laughs> let's just chill out up in the suite, and we'll be fine tomorrow. Well, that, that stuff will take care of itself. We don't have to worry about that. The game is the game, and we'll worry about that when we get there. But right now, we're all just guys that enjoy being around each other, and let's all, all just go hang out for a little while. That's team chemistry. And that's it's impossible to quantify what that means until you see it quantified. And last year, for the first time, we saw it quantified. We saw what that can do. We saw what it means in an individual game, an individual moment, an individual instance. It means hoisting the Stanley Cup for the first time in franchise history. You're going to see a pattern here with teams, and it's always it's a copycat league. So if somebody wins the Stanley Cup on sheer skill alone, the next year you better believe the teams are starting to build their rosters full of skill players. If they're big and tough, it's going to be that. The Blues have made a blueprint that very few teams have been able to execute. And the blueprint, yes, they play a style of hockey that's tailor-made for what they have on their roster. Teams can duplicate that. Maybe not as good, but you can duplicate that puck possession, cycle the puck, grind it. You can duplicate that. The hardest thing to duplicate is that culture. And this is why your head coach, your staff, your general manager, your leadership group in the locker room, this is why it's so important to establish that culture. Because the GM down the road, he can he can absolutely duplicate what you did as far as systems and players, almost to a T. But he can't duplicate that culture and that relaxed environment. And BK's phone just went off. He Siri asked, didn't like your opinion. Siri was getting after me there. But at the same time, that's the difference maker. And that's the secret sauce that the Blues had last year to win the Stanley Cup. And the secret sauce that's got them so far this year. All of this? is the reason why my confidence is at an all-time high about a 24-team playoff that's based in a hub city when they start back up. And that's why I think everybody's opinion of the Stanley Cup final, and it could be any team, an underdog team, as some of our guests have said, but in my eyes, it's Boston and the Blues because they went through all of this last year, have the exact same team, and you have that exact same camaraderie, and guess what? You're locked in a hub city. You're on the road for every game in the playoffs. It's 1225, your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. He's Jamie Rivers. That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. So we just got a listener email. It was forwarded to me by one of our bosses. Uh-oh, no. Should have had your phone on silent, BK. Yeah, that's probably what happened. They heard Siri going off. What did you do there, by the way? She, she's she. You know, we talked yeah. previously about how Alexa and Google they just listen to you at all times. Always. You said sorry, and she thought you were Siri. talking to Siri. Really? Yes. Yeah. I and thought you were messing with your phone. No. One, I was going to be offended. How are you not listening to what I'm saying? First of all, I know it's riveting. Totally fair question. No, she was just listening. She's just listening at all times. Those man. things freak me out. She's creepy. So we got this email from one of our listeners, um, and it says, and I got, I got permission to be able to use this on air, quote, love both guys, but BK has got to stop telling every guest that they are, quote, the best. Be genuine. That's all I ask. What? Wow. What? Is that is that a problem? Am I not allowed to tell every guest that they're Well, the I guess, you know what? Okay, so let's dive into that just for a second here. I, I guess... Joey, you're the best. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but Joey is the best. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that to me that is not... That was genuine. That's not problematic. And I, to, sim- to, to kind of 
take into consideration what our listener is trying to tell us here, or you specifically, because yeah. it's always it's your constructive fault. criticism. I appreciate that. Is that maybe we've had some guests that weren't great. Maybe they're great people, but maybe they're they weren't great, right? So I think what they're trying to do is have you like set a standard. Like Joey Vitale, he's great. If that's our measuring stick, Mark DeJohn. Mark DeJohn was great. If those guys are our measuring stick, then when we get somebody who's not great, I don't think you can say, hey, you're great. You can say, hey, uh, you're a great guy, or you're a great person, or you're a great what? I don't think this, maybe you got to alter a little bit. Somebody says that BK is not the best. Well, I've never been a guest on our show, so I've never told myself that. <laughs> Six five seven eight zero. The air. Just tell them they all line. suck. That, okay, no, we're not doing that one. Um, <laughs> six three six. Said, honest, another honest Christian comes off as super fake. Hmm. All right. Well, well, BK, we're always growing and getting better, and you know, we're no different than anybody else. We're no different than the athletes. We're going to go back. So here we go. Work on our game. Coming up next, we've got Darren Oliver. Okay. He's a former Cardinals pitcher. He played for them in 98-99, so I want to ask him about Big Mac, of course. He was also on the mound the day that Mark McGuire tied the record with Maris. So he was there for that. And, oh, by the way, he was a 40-year-old reliever with the Rangers in 06 when he pitched in the 10th inning against the Cardinals in Game 6. So we got a lot to ask Darren Oliver about. If he's not the best, at the end, I will not say that he's the best. A lot of pressure on Darren. We'll talk to Darren Oliver next on 101 ESPN. You're the best. <laughs> We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. There it goes. Number 61. Is it there? Yes. With former Blues defenseman Jamie Rivers, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. It is long gone summer week right here on 101 ESPN, and we're going out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to talk to former Cardinals pitcher Darren Oliver. He was traded to the Cards in 98 at the deadline. He played for the Cardinals once again in 1999, and he was on the mound the day that Mark McGuire tied the home run record of 61, which you just heard from that call. Darren, we appreciate Appreciate the time today. How are you doing, my friend? Hey, I'm doing as good as I can, man, just like everybody else. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about that day. You were on the mound. You were the starter the day that Mark McGuire ties the record. What was that experience like for you to be able to see that firsthand from in the dugout? Hey, to be honest with you, during that year, it didn't matter what I did or what any other pitchers did or, or anybody. You could have went out there and thrown a no-hitter. only thing that people cared about is did McGuire hit another home run. So actually, it was uh, so much less pressure to play back then in '98. Uh, it was pretty funny. Now, what was the atmosphere like? We've talked to a number of people this week, and you know, different players and managers have experienced different things throughout their career. You had a really long career, and this this time in history, 1998. How was that summer for you as a teammate of Mark McGuire, and some of the insanity that went along with this run? It was actually pretty cool. I mean, our team really wasn't that doing that well, but um, as far as you know, him being out there taking batting practice, there was literally like 20,000 20, people during batting practice. And actually, the opposing team, they would come out in the dugout and watch them take batting practice too. It was uh, something that we'll probably never see again. Had you ever seen anything like it before that? Had you ever seen an atmosphere in baseball where there was just so much hype surrounding one singular player? 
Oh, it was crazy. I mean, this, this poor guy, he couldn't even, like, go out to get, like, lunch or dinner without people coming up to him, you know, left and right. And it's a good thing he played back then in 98. Cause could you imagine now playing with all the social media and all that kind of stuff and people taking pictures on their phones? It'd be absolutely uh, crazy. Now, I've asked this question again of a lot of guys uh, that we've had on this week. But what was Mark McGuire like as a teammate? Away from all the cameras flashing, away from the TV stuff, away from the big home runs. Big Mac's just sitting in the clubhouse. He's on the road with you guys. What kind of guy is he? Um, he, he was nice. I mean, actually, he was kind of quiet. He didn't really say a whole lot. Um, you know, I, I think he kind of got a little annoyed with all the um, – the media coming coming to him when other guys on the team would do well. You know, I, I remember him saying, you know, a guy would go like three for four or a pitcher would have a great game. And he's like, go talk to them. You know, we won the game. You know, he didn't even hit any home runs that day. I could see if he hit a home run. But, like, every day he had to deal with the media. And I think I think it kind of it wore on him a little bit. Could you feel in the moment, we're talking with former Cardinals pitcher Darren Oliver. He played for the Cardinals starting at the deadline in 98 and then again in, two, or in 1999. Could you feel in that moment what that was doing for baseball? Because you had the strike in 94-95. Could you feel the fans coming back and the atmosphere coming back for baseball that summer? Oh, absolutely. I think it didn't matter where you were. You could be, um, you know, a businessman in Seattle, Washington, and I'm sure when they came to the office, they probably want to know, hey, did McGuire hit a home run last night? Um, that's just that's just what was going on, you know, between him and Sosa. Um, it, it definitely uh, put baseball back on the map, and it, it was fun to be a part of. I definitely uh, enjoyed it. I wanted to ask you about all these years later, with everything that we know now, does it change for you the way that you felt about that summer? Um, no, because at the time, you know, it, it was uh, it was something special. You know, I just happened to be part of it, be on the team. So, uh, you know, a lot of things obviously had transpired since then. But, you know, at the time, it was great. Uh, my family enjoyed it, um, <laughs> especially my dad. My dad really enjoyed it. He'd come out and, you know, watch the games between the Cubs and the Cardinals. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. All right, Darren, I got to ask you, you being a, a former pitcher and, you know, Mark McGuire being an elite home run hitter at the time and, and throughout his career, what was it about Mark McGuire that made him so hard to pitch against? What did he do to get pitchers out of their comfort zone? I guess basically, how did he get so many great pitches to hit or was he just that good? I mean, he was always um, a student of the game. Obviously, he was a hitting coach for, for many years. Um, but the dude was just so big in the box. And he, I don't remember him hitting too many ground balls. So, I mean, if you have a good eye, um, you don't hit many ground balls, and you're as big as he is, kind of like Barry Bonds. Um, and, you know, you know how the summers are in St. Louis. Um, the ball can jump out of there pretty pretty good. I don't care if it's daytime or at night. Um, so it was just it was a good place for him to hit, you know. And, you know, you put all that together. And he's going to be dangerous. Okay, so then what was the strategy for pitchers and opposing managers when Big Mac gets up into the batter's box? What's the strategy? What are we trying to do as a pitcher at that moment? Well, first of all, you hopefully when you, you face a guy like that, you hope nobody's on base. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when there's nobody on base, you can be a little bit more aggressive with them. Um, and obviously, I, I face him, you know, quite a few times, especially when he's with the A's. And hey, I mean, you know, he's taking me deep. So uh, he, you know, he's gotten a lot of people. It's just one of those things where, you know, a guy has that kind of swing, that kind of power, and you know, that kind of eye at the plate. 
Um, it's like a perfect combination, perfect storm. Darren, you pitched in the bigs from 1993 up until 2013. You had a 20-year Major League Baseball career, which is an incredible feat. You saw some of the best players to come through the game. Where did Mark McGuire's power, just the raw power that he had in his bat, where did that rank among the guys that you played with or against? Um, you know, from time to time, I'll see guys, um, especially since I work with the Rangers now. You know, we have a guy, Joey Gallo. I would go. I go, man. I've never actually seen pop like that since uh, since Mark McGuire. If, I, if somebody compares you to Mark McGuire pop, it's pretty special. Um, there's not too many guys that got that kind of power, though. It was just, I mean, just because I saw it day in and day out. You know, batting practice, games. You know, a lot of people didn't see it every day, and it was just like wow, tr- tremendous. And the dude was huge. I mean, he's six five, two forty, two fifty. Just like just all muscle. <laughs> like, you know, how, how, so it's like somebody um, just sculpted him like Zeus made him from the, from the gods and just, you know, did like a clay figure of him. It's crazy. Do you have a particular memory of a home run that he hit that went to a place that you previously thought it's impossible? There's no way anybody could hit a home run that far or to that place in this stadium. Oh, that's a great question, man, because I've seen him hit so many. Um I think one time I saw him take Greg Maddox oppo, you know, and it's just because he really didn't hit too many balls to right field anyway, obviously. And just the fact that he could take a guy like Greg Maddox deep to right center, you know, and, you know, the ball was low. Obviously, he's a single ball pitcher. And him to just go down and golf it, I think everybody was kind of like, whoa, if you could take a guy like that deep opposite field, you know, like it's nothing. That's uh, it's pretty special. Darren, I, I wanted to switch gears just a little bit here and fast forward in your career to where you play with the Texas Rangers. And there was a very memorable night in St. Louis. Unfortunately, not for the Rangers, but for the Cardinals. I want to ask you about the David Freeze game, because that's what we call it here. David Freeze game. What do you remember specifically from that game uh, that night? It was kind of like a heavyweight fight. It seemed like it went back and forth and back and forth. Um, you know, we, we thought we had them, but in baseball, it's different. It's not like basketball and football when you have a clock. You know, the game doesn't end until it ends. And they just kept grinding and, you know, pecking away and pecking away. And the, the biggest thing I remember from that series was not really that game. It was the game that, you know, obviously I'm with the Rangers, but it was a rain out. And we didn't think that we, we thought we could have played. And it kind of gave the Cardinals a chance to bring back um, Carpenter in the series and I think that was that was a turning point to me I mean I was like man they, they bring this guy back and, and he, you know he was pitching great you know he shut us down again I thought that was the that, that was the game that kind of got us when you look back though at game six Darren I gotta I gotta ask you a follow-up on this because it, it's not like it was one of the the singular forces that was on the team it, it was David Freese it was the hometown kid that was having an unbelievable World Series was it surprising to you guys that he ended up having that big of a moment in that game no nah, because I mean anybody's got a uniform on in the big leagues can be dangerous at any point I mean you know it's uh there's always certain guys that kind of make a name for themselves in the postseason, and he was just one of them. Um, you know, nothing really surprised me in baseball, especially when you get that deep in the postseason. All right, Darren, we got a text in from one of our listeners here, and it kind of sparked some curiosity for me. Here they say, uh, the texter goes, is Darren's dad Scoop Oliver, former Rangers first baseman? Is, is that true? 
No, he's not. Okay, <laughs> all right. We got to make sure we take care of our listeners, you know? <laughs> Darren, final question that I have for you. We're talking with Darren Oliver, Oliver, former Cardinals pitcher for 98 and 99. He was also on the mound in 2006 in game six against the Cardinals. I I wanted to ask you your lasting memory of the summer of 98. When you look back on that, is there something that you will end up, whether it's telling your kids about one day or the one thing that really comes to mind as you're thinking about it? What's your lasting memory of that summer? Man, um, I'm trying to think. Because, you know, back then I didn't have any kids. So, you know, they really don't really pay attention to baseball. So I guess if I had to think of something, especially I'm sure after they show this uh, 30 for 30, they show the game where he where he tied the, the record. I mean, you know, they actually show me pitching. But I'm sure a lot of memories will come back, and I'll probably get a lot of, you know, texts and phone calls and stuff like that. So at the moment, I can't really think of one singular thing that pops out, but I'm sure if I'm watching it, watching the 30 for 30 this weekend uh something will pop up sorry guys no worries man that is darren oliver he was a former cardinals pitcher joins us here on ribs and bk on 101 espn darren thanks so much for the time we'll talk with you again soon and enjoy the documentary on sunday all right i appreciate it guys you guys have a good one absolutely that's darren oliver joining us here on ribs and bk my apologies i said 2006 it was obviously 2011 game six i get game six 2006 my apologies. Game six in 2011 is what I was, of course, referencing. He was good. Not the best. I was anxious to see how that was going to work out for you there. Because he, he was, was good. good. He was good. But if we have to set standards, right? Like, Absolutely. He's a guy, I, I feel like Darren Oliver's a guy I'd like to sit down and drink beers with. And talk a little bit of baseball 100%. and hang out. But it's not Joe Vitale. Nope. I got, Joe I got to know, though, BK, were your insides, like, turning for not being able to say that? No. Um, I see a little bit of sweat. There was more sweat because I kept saying 2006. Okay. <laughs> Recovering from that one. Okay. I felt it in the moment. I was like, did I just say 2006? And sometimes you guys know how this goes. We're like, you say something, you're like, I think I said that wrong, but there's no need oh, to correct it now because I'm sure, no, yeah. I'm sure nobody heard it the wrong way. And, you, and then you realize, like, oh, I'm referencing game six, and, yeah, somebody's going to go ahead and correct that. And, of course, the vultures on the text line, 65780, <laughs> have gone ahead and made sure that I was corrected. There wasn't a game six in 2006. Come on, BK. I know. I know. I apologize. I'll be better next time. You're the best. <laughs> he wasn't the best. He was good. He's very good. I hope we have him on again, but not the best. It is Long Gone Summer Week on 101 ESPN with Jamie Rivers and Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll continue talking to Kyle McClellan and Tom Glavin coming up at 1 and 1.15 about that Long Gone Summer. Check out the schedule of upcoming guests and clips of interviews from the Long Gone Summer Week now at 101ESPN.com. It is all brought to you by Tracy Bibb and Allstate Insurance. Text quote 65780 to see how you can save. The Junk Drawer is next on Ribs and BK. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. John, you're the best. You're the best, Pat. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today, man. Jesse, you're the best, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. You're the best. That's Mark Saxon joining us here on Ribs and BK. JR, you're the best, man. Curbs, you're the best, man. We appreciate the time today. Dan, you're the best, man. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Joey, you're the best. <laughs> what are we supposed to be doing? The junk drawer here? <laughs> okay, let's just take a moment and appreciate the greatness of the BK remix, we'll call that. Mike Ryder putting on his old work hat, just painting beautiful art with that. 
What That's a great incredible. song, too. What a great song. Can, what can movie I hear is that song from? Karate Kid. Karate Kid, yes. Of course. Can, can I hear that one more time? Because I want to count the number of people that I did this for. At, at least that he was able to go into. Oh, yeah. Because I'm sure he was only he only had so much time between Five when weeks. this came in and... When we, oh God, that's just from that's June. That's just from June. Word over the uh, headset from you're Mike Ryder. Mark Saxon joining us here on Ribs and BK. JR, you're the best man. Curbs, you're the best man. We appreciate the time today. Dan, you're the best man. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Joey, you're the best. <laughs> you're the best. That's <laughs> five. It's June 11th. Oh, that was six. You just got six. No, these are the same ones. You're the best. My I'm not going to let you about. take something. <laughs> We've already got five. That's incredible. You know what, BK? You're the best. I'd be happier than a dog with two dinghies if you asked me. <laughs> the first five interviews I pulled up had that. Oh, God. I didn't have to go looking for it. I could find more. I'll oh, be back. Oh, God. That's amazing. I, I Mike Ryder, other- before you leave the booth, I guarantee... I guarantee that it's every interview almost. How many? Oh my God. You're the best songs can we come up with? There's got to be more, right? We got to go Tina Turner next. Oh, there it is. Simply the best. No, no. no. All right. BK, you're the best, buddy. BK, you are the best. I have no idea. I've been doing this the entire time. So I text her. 636. This literally needs to be your intro music. (laughs) Yes. This is the new show open. I could not agree more. Oh, I got corrected here on the text line. Or someone uh, helping me out. Last segment asked Darren Oliver if his dad was Scoop Oliver. It says Rivers. Darren Oliver's dad was a major leaguer Bob Oliver. Unfortunately, he recently passed away. Not oh Scoop God. Oliver. Jeez. <laughs> oh, my God. He passed away two months ago. Oof. Jamie. What did I do? Darren Oliver won't be a guest on Rivers and Beef. Why? What did I do wrong? <laughs> I asked him if his dad was Scoop Oliver. But we didn't give him the kindest regards for his dad. Yeah. He just passed oh. away. He literally just passed two months ago. I mean, this is as bad as me saying no, that it's former not. Coach You're just trying to take the attention alive. off. You're just trying to take the best attention off of you right now, BK. I asked him if his dad was the best. It's Mark Saxon joining us here on Ribs and BK. JR, you're the best man. Curbs, you're the best man. We appreciate the time today. Dan, you're the best man. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Joey, you're the best. You're the best. There's a different... There is a different tune, though. The best. You're the best. Oh, God. Mike Ryder's the best. There's one major difference. You can tell if you, if you can get to the point... Where I say Joey Vitale's the best. It's it's a little different the way that I say it. Man, we'll see you tomorrow morning. Joey, you're the best. You're the best. That has a little bit of oomph behind it. So now you're splitting hairs with it, right? Yep. Nice try. So you're saying you just lied to all of the other guys that were the best. Okay. I hope that this text from 901 is not true. Oh, God. No. Oh, my God. No way. No. No. I don't even want to read it. No. Oh, no. No. 65780. <laughs> oh, God. I, I can't come to grasp with yeah, reading it either. Just, we're going to have to fact check that before we go yeah. any further. So. so, Jamie Rivers asked Darren Oliver if his dad was Major League um, baseball player, Scoop Oliver. Uh, it was not. Uh, his father was Bob Oliver, also a Major League baseball player uh, who passed away on April 19th, which is less than two months ago. Um, 
And according to at least one of our texters, uh, may have passed away from COVID. And 636, Jamie Rivers is not poking fun at his dead dad. Come no, on I'm now. Not. Jamie right. is not that kind of person. No, I had no idea, obviously. Can we go back to talking about how I have a crutch at the end of interviews and I tell everybody that they're the best? Man, we'll see you tomorrow morning. Joey, you're the best. <laughs> you're the best. <laughs> I just like the song. I haven't heard the song in so long. <laughs> 65780 is their comfort service X line from the 618. BK sounded like he had a crush on Joey. All right, come on now. Let's jo- be honest. We kind of do. A lot of people do. We kind of do. Joey Vitale is among the best radio guests you could possibly have. You can talk about literally anything with Joey Vitale. I, I'm not kidding when I say I don't know what we're going to talk about with Joey Vitale when we open up the mics to have our conversation with Joey Vitale. It could go anywhere. It could go anywhere. Last week, we talked to him about rookie parties, which prior to the conversation, I didn't know existed. And we just exclusively talked about that for 12 minutes, basically. This week, we just talked about changing a tire. We've talked to him about murder hornets. He's talked about carrots on this very radio station. Joey could talk about anything. So he is truly the best. I would say he's number one on the power rankings of best radio guests that you can have in St. Louis. 100%. I agree. Love Joey. Love Joey. He's the best. By the way, I'm, I am looking through, and I don't see anything confirming that Bob Oliver passed away due to the coronavirus. Yeah, God. I'm feeling better about he myself. He passed away on April 19th, though. <sighs> Not great. Where were you on that one, BK? Well, you asked the question without did, saying I anything. I didn't fact check it. That's just, okay. You went straight to the text line. You were like, hey, we should go ahead and ask this question. It's Never. a bad move. At least you did pass it off as, hey, the text line said this. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and ask it. I totally sewered a texter is basically what I did. Should I send an apology? No. Hey, why? Why? I mean, I don't, it's not like I said, like, it wasn't a funny question. It wasn't a joking question. If my dad was Scoop Rivers, okay, and somebody asked me about it, my dad just passed away, I wouldn't be insulted if someone said, was your dad Scoop Rivers? I'd be like, uh, no, it wasn't. You know, whatever. I wouldn't be offended. Why would you be offended? Yeah, no, I don't think I don't think anything. it's about offending, um, but his dad did just pass. Okay, well. You know, and it whatever. was two months, uh, and I think it's a little easier to, I'm not saying easier, but coping's not as difficult two months compared to if his dad passed away two yeah, days well, ago. You'd think the guy who True. puts, you'd think the guys that puts these rundowns together would have had a little bit more information on there for us. I mean, I'm just saying. Can we saying. go back to the Karate Kid? Because apparently the 636 ribs, you remind them of Johnny from the Karate Sweep the leg, Johnny! Put him in a body bag! Oh my God. Why do I have Johnny? Not yeah, that that's rough. Guy. At least the uh, the sensei, I can see. Oh God, that that sensei guy is incredible too. He's a beauty. He's a beauty. Still rolling. You that's know what? A- Go ahead. I was gonna. We we got a guest coming up, and we're getting pretty close. We've we are already at the well, time. Maybe we can we ask him if him. his dad is got a cool nickname. I'm gonna check on uh, Kyle McClellan's father. We're going to make sure that we're good to ask about that. We'll do that coming up next with former Blues superstar defenseman Jamie Rivers and Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. We're going to talk to former Cardinals pitcher and 2011 World Series champion Kyle McClellan next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. What a call. What a call. 
We continue celebrating the long gone summer. It is long gone summer week right here on 101 ESPN with former Blues superstar defenseman Jamie Rivers. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. Let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line where we are happy to be joined by Kyle McClellan, former Cardinals World Series champion. Kyle, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you guys? Good, Kyle. I got to ask you a quick question. Uh, obviously, going through this, seeing that uh, in 1998, your 15 year old boy here, growing up in St. Louis, I just got to ask: uh, Did you own a Rivers Blues jersey, and uh, was I your favorite player? Uh, you know what? I had I had my room. I had all your jerseys, man. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I appreciate that, Kyle. As someone who was growing up in St. Louis at the time when the '98 season was taking place, I mean, you had a different perspective than some of the other guys that we've had on that were players with McGuire in '98. What was it like to be a kid for you growing up as a baseball player, watching that summer and watching Big Mac? Yeah, it was it was awesome as a kid. I mean, I was a huge Cardinals fan, so uh, my dad, through his company, had season tickets, so we got to go to a handful of games a year. And uh, at that point, you know, I was getting to the point where you know maybe some friends were starting to drive, or we'd get to go down there and, and get the five dollar bleacher seats, you know, and uh, and try to sneak down to the good seats. And and uh, so all those all those memories are just embedded in my brain of, of growing up down there, at Bush Stadium, and then the chase of of the McGuire and Sosa uh, home run chase and, 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 and all that. And that was the time really when, you know, that was kind of a big moment for me as, as I was a huge baseball guy, I loved the Cardinals. And then I would start to kind of come in my own as well and develop and turn into, Hey, maybe, maybe baseball is a future for me. Maybe I can go play in, in college or professionally. And maybe one day I can pitch down here at Bush stadium. So all that I would say had a big influence. Kyle, do you remember where you were at when big Mac hit the, the home run to break the record because I remember that I was you know I know it's going to be hard to believe I was sitting in a bar having a cold <laughs> beer and uh, watching it on one of the big screens there but as a 15 year old and like you said so into baseball you're coming into your own baseball's taking over your world Mark McGuire's breaking records do you remember where you were or what your feelings were at that time I don't remember where I was exactly but I have to go back and really look because I, I believe I was there for 70 um, it was a day game. I might was what was the last was the last one he hit? Was it a day game? I might have been there. He hit two the final day. Uh, I'd have to go back and think, man. But I, I, I was there for a lot of them. Um, and, and just remember, like the the emotion, the energy of like every time he came up. Obviously, everybody's standing. The the light bulbs that are going through. Uh, but man, now you're gonna you're gonna kind of get something going. I'm gonna have to go back and I'm gonna talk to my dad and figure out like what games we were at and uh, and how that all played out. I'm sure I kept the tickets and all that for it because it was just. I mean, you knew it was history when you were going down there and the energy in the stadium. And like, I'll never forget. We're talking to Kyle McClellan, former Cardinals pitcher, 2011 World Series champion here on Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. So, Kyle, I have a family friend who also went to Hazelwood West at the time when oh, you were there. You go. <laughs> yeah, let me guess. Let me guess. They hit a home run off me. That's what I no, get all the time. No, 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 no. Um, were you in the band when you were at Hazelwood West? Yeah, I was. I was a drummer. Do you remember them bringing out a TV for you guys to be able to watch McGuire uh, whenever you guys were practicing to be able to watch his homers? I don't remember that. But doesn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I don't remember that. So from the story that I was told, apparently, because a lot of you guys in the band were baseball fans, of course, being here in St. Louis, they would bring out a television or they would bring out a projection for <laughs> the band to be able to watch any time that Mark McGuire was coming up to the plate because everybody wanted to see what Big Mac was going to do that summer in 98. Well, if, if we didn't, we should have. So uh, if, if we did, that was uh, that was the right thing to do. Um, but no, it, it was. Uh, it, I mean, you know, that's the kind of that's the kind of moment it was. You know, I mean, it was just such a historic uh, deal. And here in St. Louis, obviously, obviously, it's uh, you know the fans celebrate and make it such a big deal. So it wouldn't surprise me at all. What is your lasting memory of that summer, Kyle? When you look back on it now and remember what that was like for you, what's your lasting memory of the summer of '98? I just think the, the trips down to the stadium, excitement, the energy. You know, unfortunately, when you know, I, I around in 2011, you lose that fan. And I losing black and a couple of years after I was done, and and I came up and I, I was excited. I told my wife, I said, "That's the first time I've been a fan again." You know, like you lose that fan side of you because you you've been through it and seen it and. And it just takes me back to when I was a fan. You know, didn't know anything about uh, anything else other than just uh, growing up as a diehard fan. Just uh, one of them never game. And I didn't really have a favorite player. I just, I, I love the team in general. And uh, and so just those memories of going down there with that energy and just being a true fan and celebrating with everybody in the city, those uh, accomplishments. Kyle, I want to dive back into your high school past here. Um <laughs> I was listening to BK talk about how you're playing baseball at the time and you're in the band. I got a clarification, by the way. Apparently it was not a TV. It was over the loudspeaker. That's the way that they would play the games. All right. All right. So you're back in high school. You're on the baseball. You're playing baseball. You're doing well at that. You're in the high school band. Which one was your first passion? I got to know it. Were you into music before baseball, baseball, then music? It's just a you don't see it very often. Yeah, and I wish you, I wish you saw it more. To be honest with you, I was a, uh, I was, you know, I was a baseball player ever since I was a kid. That's what I always wanted to do. Um, and early on in, in elementary school, I, I started. Uh, I wanted to play the drums, and so then you had to the, the the band teacher. You had to learn how to read music. So I started on the sax for a year, and then went into the drums. I wanted to play the set, and so I was able to play uh, the drum set and learn through that. And then when I got to high school, um, they. Actually snare drum on the marching band and i loved it and i'll be honest it was the hardest thing i've ever done because i was an athlete i wasn't a drummer and like the other drummers in there went to they would go to the drum camps in the summer and all that kind of stuff and and for me i was playing ball and so to play on the snare drum on the line you had four guys on there you have to hit at the exact same time and so me being a freshman and playing with these guys that were as dedicated to to drumming as i was the sports for me to have to keep up with them and hit at the exact same time and not hold them back it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And, and I learned so much through that of, you know, persistence and, and practicing and doing things outside of my comfort zone that I naturally wasn't great at and, and had to develop that skill and, and learn how to adapt to a team and, and, and a, a line of, of three other guys that, that wanted to go out and be as good as we could be. So I loved it. I was also the quarterback of the football team. And so um, I didn't do much of the marching band after my sophomore year when I was a quarterback of the varsity team. And, um, so I ended up after my sophomore year, didn't do it anymore, but it's the one thing, um, I still, I drum in the car. I drum all the time. Like when you're a drummer, you drum nonstop. Adam Wainwright, actually funny story, didn't believe me. And we were in Florida <laughs> at somebody's house and he went to the bathroom and there was a drum set and he came back and he just pointed and he said, go. And I said, what? And he goes, come here. And I walked in and he goes, let me see it. And I got on there and started drumming. And he was like, 
he could, he like couldn't believe that I could actually still get on a drum set and, and throw down a little bit. So it, I loved it. Um, still love music and, and love to bang around every once in a while. And, um, but yeah, it was something I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah. I asked that question because, uh, I'm a drummer as well. I have yeah. a drum kit at home. Really? I've got a Tama <laughs> drum kit, titanium. Anyway, it's a, yeah. So I was intrigued by that and you're right. Yeah. It's a whole other mental toughness and mental preparation too, especially in your, like if you're alone doing it solo, that's one thing. But like you said, right. the stress of being in, you know, the, the band and, and a line of drummers and hitting your spots and make sure you don't mess it up. That's stressful, man. I'm going to tell you what, you want to get fired up, go search, uh, go search like drumline, um, you know, things on YouTube and watch, watch these, uh, these guys go at it. And especially snare drums. It's just, it's a march. Everything went with it. It was just a cool, uh, it was a cool experience. I'm glad I got to do it. Um, you know, and it's one of those things like I, my wife really wants my kids to be involved in, in music and those things. I think it's a great thing. Final quick question for you is we're talking to Kyle McClellan here on ribs and BK on one one ESPN. A lot of people that we've talked to this week, Kyle, tell us about how batting practice was as much a big thing as the game itself whenever you were watching Big Mac. Were you ever yeah. able to get out to Bush Stadium for batting practice? Yeah, we would get out there. And actually that year, you know, we hit the, the home run, had the Band-Aid over the post-dispatch sign. Um, we actually, uh, through my dad's work, he, we had like a, a little tour. And so you got to go up there and see where he hit it. That was during a game. But, uh, you know, you got to see where you got to hit that and, and see the distances. But, yeah, I mean, that was as much of a spectacle as the game, just to go there and, and see him, uh, you know, unload. And, and still, when I was a player, I, I used to love him watching Albert and those guys get in there and do it. Uh, it, it BP is definitely a time where you got to put on a show and, and, uh, and really see the strength that these guys have. Kyle, before we let you go here, before BK wraps us up here, I wanted to wish you a happy birthday, Absolutely. sir. Thank you. Thank you. Don't tell everybody how old I am. No, I won't go that far. I was, I was just checking it out. I'm like, ah, you know, I'm not going to out the guy, but happy birthday, man. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Kyle, we always appreciate the time. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. We'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. That's Kyle McClellan joining us here on Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. Notice I didn't do it there. I didn't do it. I think you could have done it there. Kyle's great. No, I think you well, I guess, yeah, I guess we can't say the best to everybody, but I... I Honestly, that was bordering for me. He dove into some stuff, gave us information. Extra, like to me, eh. one fifteen. Your time check is brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. I think this next guest is going to be the best. I think he is. Tom Glavin. He was the Cy Young Award winner in nineteen ninety eight. He was drafted in the NHL draft ahead of Brett Hull, and he was the lead of the MLB Players Association in 94-95. I've got a lot of questions for Tom Glavin, plus the summer of 98. We'll get to all of that next with the former Cy Young Award winner on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. It is a distinct possibility that this is his last at bat of 1998. Take a good long look. This is going to have to last you until... Next March in Florida. First and third, two out. Into the field! Number 70! How much more can you give us, Big Mac? Number 70! With former Blues defenseman Jamie Rivers, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN as we continue celebrating long gone summer week here on 101 ESPN. We go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to talk with a 1998 Cy Young Award winner and a Hall of Famer. He is Tom Glavin joining us here on Ribs and BK. Tom, how are you doing today? 
I'm doing great. How are you guys? Doing well. We really appreciate the time. So let's go back to that summer, Tom. You are the Cy Young Award winner, and the backdrop of it all, the reason why we're here in St. Louis talking about it is because, of course, the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa home run chase. What was it like at that time to be the best pitcher in the league when the headliners are going to Sosa and McGuire? <laughs> well, you're... Uh... You're fighting to get a little bit of respect, I guess. But, um, you know, listen, I mean, those what those guys did that summer obviously was special. Um, you know, it was the kind of thing that uh, as the summer went on uh, and it became more and more apparent that uh, what was happening was special. And, you know, those two guys just seemed to feed off of it and give us more and more to talk about and anticipate every day. I mean, it became a spectacle. I mean, every time... You know, one of those guys would come to the come to bat in their ballparks or even on the road. Uh, the anticipation level would rise, and and you know, people were genuinely excited to hopefully see a home run. So, I mean, I've I've never I never seen anything like it um, up to that point in time, and I'm not sure that I saw anything like it afterwards. But um, you know, the way those two guys captured the attention of you know the nation and, and particularly baseball fans across the nation was pretty crazy. Tom, what was your mental strategy like going into those uh, those at bats where Maguire or Sosa would step into the batter's box? You're sitting there on the mound, obviously Cy Young winner that year. You're having a fantastic year. What's your thoughts going through your head as Big Mac enters the batter's box? You know, I think your thought process is initially it's what it always is, right? I mean, when you go into a game, you're looking at a lineup, you're putting together a game plan, and you're identifying one or two guys that you don't want to let beat you. Uh, and obviously, Mac was that guy in St. Louis. And, uh, you know, it's not to say that there weren't other guys, but obviously he was probably at the top of the list. Um, so you tried your best to get into situations where he couldn't beat you. Secondarily, yeah, you knew what was going on, and you didn't want to be on that list, um, you know, when the year was over, if they broke a record or, or whatever, you know, was that going to end up being. You didn't you didn't want to have your name be on that list. So, um you know, there's a little bit different motivation in that regard. And, and I think I think most pitchers are probably similar to me in that, like I said, A, you're, you're identifying those guys as the guys you don't want to let beat you, and then B, you don't want to be on the list. So they're getting the best of every everybody they face, you know, because that's everybody's mindset is they, they want to get them out and they don't want to give up a home run, which, you know, when you think about it, knowing that that level of focus that they're getting from every pitcher um, and getting every pitcher's best, and they're still able to put together the summer they, they both did, uh, it's pretty remarkable. So just a quick follow-up to that one, Tom, is as a pitcher and as you, your pitching coach and as a team, your strategy, what are the pitch selections that you're setting up for Mark McGuire? Like, as you're sitting in there, like, where are you going right? What was your strategy with your pitches for Mark McGuire to avoid being put on that list? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, with those guys, it was similar to, you know, most everybody else I pitched to, but particularly, you know, guys that can take you out of the ballpark. I think the big key was you wanted to keep the ball down so that they couldn't elevate. Um, you know, you wanted to try and stay, you know, knee-high in the strike zone somewhere to where if there's contact, you know, hopefully it's either weak contact or ground ball, uh, and stay out of that area that's just above it that's, you know, maybe mid-thigh to thigh-high, uh, those kind of balls that, you know, those guys can elevate and really drive somewhere. So, you know, for me, like I said, it was down and away, uh, changing speeds down and away, try to keep them honest in as much as I could. If I felt like he was getting a good look at my changeup, 
um, better than I wanted him to, then I certainly would uh, pitch inside and try to get him off of that a little bit, change his eyesight a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, I think really, especially with Mac, trying to stay out of those elevated areas in the strike zone to where he could he could elevate the ball and drive it, um, which is what he was so dangerous at doing. How about this, Jamie? Tom Glavin went up against the Cardinals. He started against the Cardinals three times that summer. McGuire got a hit, a single off of Glavin in the first game, the first appearance that McGuire had against Glavin. Didn't get another hit against him in the other two starts against Tom Glavin and the Atlanta Braves. How about that, Tom? Well, I guess I did all right with him. I know, I, well, I know that, that's a little... Uh... That's a little tainted because the one game there he got thrown out after his first at bat, so I didn't have to I didn't have to face him anymore. So. You don't have to mention uh, that. Uh, Nobody yeah, we, we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> That's all right. I mean, like I said, uh, like I said to people who have asked me about it, I was like, that was that was the best game plan I could have possibly come up with was to find a way to have him thrown out after <laughs> after his first at bat. So. We're talking to the Hall of Famer and the 1998 Cy Young Award winner, Tom Glavin, here on Rivs and BK on 101 ESPN. Tom, the number one thing that I've heard that we need to ask you about is your Chicks Dig the Long Ball ad that you did back in that time. How did that come about, and how much fun was it to make that? Uh, it was a ton of fun. Um, how it came about, I'm not, I mean, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, we got, I got a call from my agent telling me that, uh, you know, Nike was interested doing, in doing a commercial with me and Greg. And, you know, I thought, yeah, that'd be fun. I don't know. I don't remember if I really knew what the premise of the commercial was uh, until I had kind of loosely agreed or Greg and I had loosely agreed that we were going to do it. Um, and then it, it became apparent that it was this chick, Chicks Dig the Long Ball theme. And, um, you know, and then it all kind of came together. And, and it was fun. It was weird because... We did the commercial. If I'm not, if I remember correctly, I think it was the same road trip, uh, and and it was Florida and Philadelphia. So we did the first part of the commercial in Florida, uh, where we're shooting these scenes outside, where Greg and I are, are swinging at skeet shoots and uh, you know doing some of the weight room scenes and things like that that we did. Then we switched to Philadelphia where we did a lot of the Rocky stuff and and you know the on field batting practice and. And I think for both of us, as we were doing it, we just kind of wondered, like, what are they doing with this? Where where are they going? How is this all going to piece together? I think the both of us had a little bit of anxiety of thinking, you know, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> you know, what, what are they doing? Um, but obviously the final product was, was pretty funny. And I think it, you know, what makes it fun, obviously, is, you know, it was, it was a fun summer to begin with, with the whole home run thing. But I think it, it kind of showed a side of Greg and I that, you know, most people never got to see. Uh, so I think that made it more fun for people as well. So speaking of chicks digging the long ball, uh, you're no stranger looking through your thing here. You got one home run in your career. Um, what do you remember about that home run? And do you remember who the pitcher was? Of course I remember who the pitcher was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I remember it was, uh, it was in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, the old ballpark. Uh, and it was actually, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was a game-winning home run. Not in the sense there was a walk-off, but it was a 1-1 game at the time. I hit, I hit a, a first-pitch fastball off of John Smiley to the opposite field. Um, I remember the ball leaving my bat, and I, and I took off thinking, all right, I'm going to get a double. Uh, and by the time I got close to second base, it was like, oh, my God, that just went over the fence. <laughs> so, you know, kind of had to go into somewhat of a, a home run trot, but not, you know, not really. 
the adrenaline of getting back to the dugout and everybody's, you know, high-fiving you the whole nine yards and you're fired up and you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I just hit a home run. And then the realization hits, okay, I got to go back out and pitch now. <laughs> so you kind of, you know, you got to kind of get your emotions back in check pretty quickly. Um, but, I, you know, it was it was obviously a, a fun moment for me and, and, you know, one that unfortunately I never got to do again. But, hey, I did it once, so I proved I could do it. So you had a little bit of power yourself, Tom. You were a <laughs> pitcher in Major League Baseball for 22 years. You went up against some damn good players. We're talking a lot about McGuire this week, of course. Who was the guy with the most power, the most pure power that you ever went up against as an opposing hitter? I mean, Mac would certainly be at, at the top of the list. Um, you know, I think of a guy like Gary Sheffield, um, you know, certainly at, at different times, a guy like, you know, Albert Pujols, um, you know, Mike Piazza when he was in the prime and, and doing his things. I mean, those are the guys that were, you know, just strong and could really drive the ball. But, you know, I think the, oftentimes you'll hear certain guys talked about in, in, in the sense that, you know, when they hit the ball, it sounds different. It comes off the bat different. It travels different. And Mac was one of those guys. I mean, when, when he got a hold of one, it just had a different sound to it. And, and it was just that the, you know, the, the, the contact that he would make, I mean, the ball would just carry. I mean, it just didn't seem to, you know, it was like almost like gravity had no effect on it. It was just, it was just going to carry. But, you know, he, he was one of the guys, like, you never, you know, you never fear anybody, so to speak. Obviously, you respect everybody that gets in the box, and certain guys are, for me, throughout my career, being McGuire and Gary Sheffield. Those were the two guys that I just, I always prayed that just please don't hit a line drive back at me because, like I said, those guys, the way they hit the ball, the way the ball came off their bat, uh, you just didn't think you were going to have time to react, and, and thankfully neither one of them did. So speaking of great players, I've got to go down this road. Obviously, being a former NHL player myself, Looking through the Tom Glavin scouting report on Wikipedia, for our listeners who don't know, you were drafted to the NHL ahead of our very own Brett Hull. Please tell me about your hockey career. And I guess most specifically what I'd like to know is, obviously you played hockey at a really high level and you're really good. You got drafted. But when was the decision made that you were going to go baseball rather than hockey? Um, well, and trust me, every, any chance I get to remind Brett Hull of that, I do remember <laughs> anywhere. So, um, I'm, I'm quick to remind him of that, but, um, you know, it's funny coming out of high school, I was, you know, what I tell people, I was probably a more polished hockey player and a more raw baseball player. Um, you know, I'm, I mean, my, my baseball pitching skills were, I had a good arm, uh, and, and I really didn't know how to pitch. I mean, my idea of, of a changeup in high school was let me throw this next fastball harder than I threw the one before. I mean, that, that was, that was my mentality. I just, I didn't really know what I was doing. I never had any coaching really. You know, my people will always ask me, Oh, when did you start taking pitching lessons? Honest to God, my first pitching lesson that I ever got was the day that I showed up for pro ball. Uh, that was the only time I had ever gotten any, any pitching, uh, advice lessons, whatever, or, or thought about my mechanics. So, that's why I say I was a better, I was a more polished hockey player. I was just really raw in baseball. And it, and it was not an easy decision. I mean, I went through the whole college process um, trying to find a school where I could play both. Uh, I had a lot of baseball schools that were interested in me that didn't have hockey. I had a, a lot of being from Boston. 
you know, the BCs, the BUs, and, and the, a lot of those schools that were really after me for hockey, but they didn't have baseball. So um, I wasn't ready to give either one up. And the college I was going to go to, UMass Lowell, was a uh, hockey East school, uh, really good hockey. They were really, really good Division II baseball school. So that was kind of the route that I was going. And then when I got drafted, um, you know, as you know, in hockey, it's different. They call you. I got a call. I said, hey, we drafted you. Uh, we know you're going to school. We'll talk to you in a couple of years. Uh, whereas with baseball, it was, hey, we drafted you and we want to sign you. And I think, you know, the Braves drafted me, and, and within two or three days, uh, they were sitting at my kitchen table uh, negotiating a contract to get me to sign. So, I mean, it's a, it's a different process in baseball. And it really wasn't until the Braves really kicked in uh, their aggressiveness in terms of trying to sign me to where I really sat down, tried to make a list, pros and cons with both sports. And, and you know, the one thing that, Kept back, you know, came back to me more than anything else was I was a left-handed pitcher, and you know, being a left-handed pitcher in baseball, I had an advantage that I didn't have in hockey. So uh, I figured I'd better try and make use of it, and I think it worked out all right. Yeah, it worked out pretty good for you, uh, to say the least. But is there anything that you were able to bring with you from hockey? that, you know, translated into baseball or gave you an advantage as a baseball player having a hockey background? I think my hand-eye coordination certainly helped. I think uh, the competitiveness of hockey uh, helped me. I think the um, the aspect of, you know, because people who don't play hockey and, and, and talk to you about playing hockey, and I'm sure you've had this conversation with people who haven't played hockey, you know, they all, a lot of them say the same thing. I don't know how you do that because if somebody hit me, I'd want to fight every person that hit me. <laughs> And, and it's like, well, no, it's not really that way. It's not how it goes. But I think a large part of that is, is when you're in that environment and you're getting beat up and you're getting hit and you're getting slashed, you learn to keep your emotions in check. Uh, you learn to kind of deal with that stuff. And I think if there was one thing that always people always talked about me when they watched me pitch was I couldn't tell if you were winning by 10 runs or losing by 10 runs. I just always had my emotions in check. And I think that had a lot to do with with hockey as well, because there's a lot going out there going on when you're out there on the ice that can get your blood boiling. Uh, and the better you learn to kind of keep all that stuff in check, uh, the better off you're going to be. So I think, you know, certainly the, the competitive side of things um, and the kind of keeping my emotions in check, I think were two big takeaways for me from hockey. Final thing, as we're talking to Tom Glavin, the Hall of Fame pitcher here on Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. Tom, you were intimately involved in the 94-95 baseball negotiations that ultimately led to the strike. How much right now does the current situation that we're watching unfold remind you of what happened back then? Well, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. I think on the one hand, where it doesn't remind me is because we clearly, we went into 1994 knowing there was going to be a fight. Uh, and knowing there was going to be a, a strike date and pretty much knowing we were going to reach that date and we weren't going to have a deal and there was going to be some sort of work stoppage. So this is different in the sense that what's happened here to put this um, situation where it is uh, centered around economic discussions was, you know, a pandemic that nobody saw coming. So that part is different. I think where it's similar is in the sense that when we went on strike in 94, the game took a huge hit and it wasn't really until Mac and Sammy were doing their thing in 98 to where a lot of people who swore off baseball decided, okay, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be a part of that. So we got lucky to some degree that that happened. I think this is similar in that sense in that if, if baseball, if baseball is the only sport that doesn't come back and it doesn't come back because of economic reasons, 
I think a lot of people in this country are going to are going to be really really upset with the game and they're going to swear it off. Is it going to be to the level of ninety four or more? I don't know, but I think that's what that's the risk that baseball is running in not getting something done. So I don't care, you know. Like I've said, I don't care if you're on the owner side or you're on the player side. The PR battle doesn't matter. At the end of the day, if there's no baseball, baseball is going to lose. Uh, so I'm hoping that similar to as I've said to people, our after the 94 strike, our next collective bargaining agreement, we were going down that road again, and it was on the heels of 9-11. And the cooler heads in the room prevailed, and, and there were two prevailing thoughts. Number one, we just put the game through hell with a strike. And number two, the country's gone through hell. We can't do this. We can't do this again. And that had a lot to do with us getting something done. So I'm hoping that the, the outside pressure of the country wanting to get back to normal and get baseball back, I'm hoping that that's going to put enough pressure on both sides to figure something out uh, so that we're going to have baseball before too long. Tom, you're the best. Hopefully we will be able to talk to you about some real baseball coming up soon. We always appreciate the time, my friend. Thanks so much for joining us here today on Ribs and BK. All right, you guys are welcome. Have a great day. Absolutely. That's Tom Glavin joining us here on Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. I totally endorse your you're the best. That was real. Yeah, that was real. Tom Glavin, like, he might be the bar now. He might be. Joey, you got some work to do. I still think Joey's great. But Tom Glavin, that was incredible stuff. Have you looked back at the 94-95 draft? The 1994 draft. Or, excuse me, 1984. I was like, all over the place. 1984 draft whenever he was selected. He was in the fourth round that year. He ended up being the 69th overall pick in that draft class. Some of the names in this class are absolutely ridiculous. The number one pick that year was Mario Lemieux. Mm. Number three was Eddie O. Uh, later on, you obviously have Brett Hull, and it just goes on and on and on. It's amazing the the list of the names that he's with when it comes to being selected in the NHL draft. He forgoes that, decides to go the baseball route, and, you know, just becomes one of the best pitchers in the last 50 years of baseball. Here's a tidbit that we didn't have time to get to. it. I could have kept him on the phone half the day, um, but obviously we don't want to do that to people. But if he was born in Canada, okay, he probably would have continued as a hockey player. And this is why. In the United States, you play high school hockey. You're direct. Your next step is towards college. And in the NHL, when you got a guy who goes to college, you sit back for a couple of years. You let him marinate and develop and play college hockey. In Canada, I went the junior hockey route. At 18 years old, I landed here in St. Louis at an NHL training camp. Because you had basically been playing college hockey. Yeah, the or junior the hockey is, is the comparison. Hockey. And so if Tom Glavin had been in a system like that, I've heard him say it before. His decision could have been totally different had he had the ability to step into an NHL camp that that summer or that that fall right after being drafted. He may have continued down that path. That's incredible. Think about how much changes. I mean, the the, the entire '90s, the history of '90s baseball changes entirely if they don't have that one-two punch of Glavin and Maddox. It completely changes that Braves team that won how many? Well, like six consecutive division titles. That team, it doesn't become what it was because that's that's what made them so special was having that one-two punch in the rotation. Every, everything changes. History, the history of baseball has changed, and we don't decision. get and we don't get the commercial of chicks dig the long ball, which is really the important thing. Here. Maddox and can't do it alone. I probably don't tell him you're the best at the end of the interview. We maybe, probably are having a different. But maybe discussion. we're asking him about Blues hockey at maybe. that point, and he might still be the best. Maybe he would have later been drafted by the Blues.
maybe we'd be talking about Hall of Fame hockey player. Could be. Tom Glavin, former He could end up being my teammate. Tom Glavin, we're closer than you think, buddy. Six six degrees of separation here. Yeah, he's like, yeah, 60 feet away, Riff. <laughs> With former Blues superstar defenseman Jamie Rivers and Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. We'll cross things over with the Fastlane next. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. John, you're the best. You're the best, Pat. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today, man. Jesse, you're the best, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. You're the best. That's Mark Saxon joining us here on Ribs and DK. JR, you're the best, man. Curbs, you're the best, man. We appreciate the time today. Dan, you're the best, man. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Joey, you're the best. Oh, boy. <laughs> Guess I've got a tagline. Am I getting sponsorships for this? We got to sell You're that now. Presented by Tracy Bibbs. Don't cheat from Tracy Bibbs. <laughs> Text quote. Find a way that you can save. My goodness. You're the best, PK. I had no idea. I had no idea I've been doing this the entire time. I legitimately didn't. I guess, I guess we've all got a crutch, right? I'm sure BT's got a crutch. We're crossing things over with the fast lane. So here, let's drag BT into this. Yeah, microphone. Mo- I, I, I was listening on the way in today. I just wanted to let you know, BK, I think you're the best. Joey, you're the best. Do we have the full thing? Yeah, I think our I boy think BT, BT has to uh, go through this. Ryder, Ryder did another one. Did another um, remix. Apparently, it's even, even more than what it was previously. Uh, I was unaware of how significant of an issue this was, but here we go. John, you're the best. You're the best, Pat. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today, man. Jesse, you're the best, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. You're the best. That's Mark Saxon joining us here on Ribs and BK. JR, you're the best, man. Curbs, you're the best, man. We appreciate the time today. Dan, you're the best, man. We'll see you tomorrow morning. <laughs> Joey, you're the best. Golly. There was some love in that. In that, the, the, Joey, the, best one. Joey. the Joey yeah. one's different. Yeah. The rest of them were disingenuous. <laughs> yeah. That was just over, over the top disingenuous. You know what, though? While it might be a situation right now, BK, you probably heard it the first time. You're like, son of a bitch. That just happened. And and maybe you're like upset about it. Or maybe like you're embarrassed. Like, don't no, do that all the time. No, sometimes we need these things to be brought to our attention. Look, I, I had a texter wearing me out forever. It's like, oh, is everything great, Brad? Is it great? Is it great? Is stuff great? I'm like, do I say great that much? And then I was listening to myself like, sure as hell do. I say great a lot. Hey, I'm you're a positive. positive. I'm a pretty positive guy, but maybe yeah. I should use some other synonyms, you know? It could be fabulous. It could be outstanding. So it could that's be why the thesaurus is up all the time for say, That's correct. That's gotcha. why it's there. So... It's a. I, I figure this is just a learning ground, and people are savages. By the way, like Mike Ryder putting together that thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's because we got an email from a listener, kind of like yours. That's a texter, right? Yeah. They said Imagine it wasn't even a texter. They took time to make an email. That's the email that's says. Great. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Love both guys, but BK has got to stop telling every guest that they are the best. Be genuine. That's all. <laughs> You're just fine, Tim. See you later. (laughs) Okay, but now here's what BK did inadvertently in this, okay? And this is what we discussed after BT is he's actually created a performance scale for our guests. So if they come on our show and BK doesn't end it with you're the best, that means your performance is not up to snuff. 
And Has we, it happened? It, well, it happened today. We yeah. had a guest on today. He was really good and a really great guy. Okay. But it wasn't great, and BK held back. He did held he, back. Did he hold back only because this had been brought to his attention oh, 100%, before? yeah. Was it just, a, did he start and, and say, yeah, see you later. <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> being on the show. <laughs> so I was also a little traumatized at the moment as happens, well. man. Because, uh, not because of this. This this is this is okay. I can deal with this, right? Uh, Jamie Rivers took a text. We were talking to Darren Oliver, oh, former Cardinals okay, pitcher. Yeah, I want to get your, up. I want to get this. Yeah, good, good, good. So we were talking to Darren Oliver, who had a 20-year Major League Baseball career. That's pretty good. And somebody texted in and said, hey, was Scoop Oliver his father? And Jamie, without doing any research beforehand, said, hey, was Scoop Oliver, I got a text here, was Scoop Oliver your dad? And Darren just kind of plainly says, no, nope, Scoop Oliver was not my dad. Um, well, we come to find out after the interview, uh, Darren's father passed away less than two months ago. Oh, crap. Okay, but, so here. And allegedly, there's the may have had Oliver. something to <laughs> That may have had something to do with COVID. That's not oh great. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Okay, so all right. Well, you know what though? <laughs> he knows that you don't. You, had you known that, it's not like you're going to ask that question. You guys are. Uh, you guys are the best. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's unfortunate. It happens, but you know what? He doesn't. He doesn't hate you guys. I didn't think so. That People happens. brought. They're like, what? Well, you know, is it disrespectful? You know, maybe you should be case. Like, maybe we should text and apologize. I'm like. Why would hey. I apologize? I didn't mean to do it. It wasn't like even a malicious question. Like even if my dad had passed away and his name was Scoop, if somebody asked me if my dad was Scoop, I'd say, "Oh, I'd acknowledge it or say, "No, no, that wasn't my dad." Right. I wouldn't be like, no, "What a right. jerk this guy is." No, I totally agree. I there are times that I, I can't remember like the one uh, off the top of my head, but there are plenty of times where I've said something I'm like, oh, "Why? <laughs> why? <laughs> why would you even say that?" By the way, speaking of things that I shouldn't say, uh, I get multiple texts that say I, I say it's a beautiful thing a lot. Apparently, it's a beautiful We've thing. Is one of my thing. crutch. Uh, so that's what I'm saying. We all have these things, and they're the best, or they're great, or it's a beautiful thing. Uh, or somebody here says, "I was traveling in Italy." They said Americans say "great" a lot. That's from Tony. So, so you're not alone. Yeah, there's strength in numbers. <laughs> I wonder if people also say you're the best a lot. Uh, from the 901, somebody says BK needs to use other adjectives when saying goodbye to a guest, like "Thanks for coming on, Tom. You're mediocre," or "Thanks for coming on, Bob." You're disappointing. I'm sure that would go over sure, very well. What if that ended up being your thing, though? <laughs> to your point of, like, not just the grading scale, like, that you guys know and inside listeners know of, like, it's the best. Like, you are rating a guest, and they know about it coming in. They know yeah. about it as they leave. All right, BK, what did I get? You were okay. Yeah. It's like, damn it. All right, next time I'm going to try harder. And then all of a sudden, you have guests, like, big guests, like, big guys that, that are, like, playing up for you. It ends up being your thing. So, um, listeners are already lukewarm on me, uh, okay. BT. <laughs> Having guests also not exactly love coming on the show, I, th I think would be a bad idea for me at this point you in my what? career. It, it put it on your... Yeah, it's the to-do list, yeah. right? The honey-do list. I'll, I'll get there maybe 10 years from now. Apparently. Maybe when I'm at your your point of your career right now, BT. Maybe then we can do something like All right. that. All right, I say uh, in your heart of hearts a lot as well, <laughs> turns out. You're the best. That's Mark Saxon joining us here on Ribs and BK. JR, now, you're the best really? man. Curbs, you're the best man. Ferrari, we appreciate the time we, today. Uh, Daniel, as we talk about this, can you bring back the first remix? This is the first remix. Oh, there it is. How do you, can you not tell the songs? I wasn't really listening. I have a problem with that.
It makes for such good radio. Oh, yeah. Like, that is great stuff. Now, you're going to go home. You're going to cry a little bit. You're going to have a complex. <laughs> he's, he's rattled. I know, he's I rattled. Guess. I know. He's going to go home. I did my best. Yeah, he's like, I try so hard, and I prep for all these guests, and I have really good questions, and I want them to feel like they're invited to this show anytime. But nobody likes it. <laughs> what BK doesn't realize is from this moment going forward, every time we have a guest, the intro music as we have that guest on hold, yeah. waiting, is going to be these remixes. You're the best. You're the best. You're the best. Hey, we're joined now by Brad Thompson. <laughs> and then he'll know. That's right. You better be good. Otherwise, you're not going to get a you're the best. That's right. So you're and not really. End, if you don't get one, I feel like that's got to be the worst feeling in the world. And then you're going to send a text to him. I'm so sorry about that, guys. <laughs> no, they're, yeah, they're going to hang up and then text us and be like, "Man, I'm sorry. I should have been better." Yeah, Bob, you were mediocre today. So yeah. our you text line can be ferocious sometimes, man. <laughs> From the three one four, this is just totally uncalled for. Stalter's not even in studio right now. From the three one four, Stalter also has a crush when he needs to that he needs to stop doing. It's called talking. Oh, oh, wow. Brad, can you elaborate? My Yikes. God. Look, I think he's great. Personally. <laughs> he's the heart of hearts. You know what? Isn't that the fun thing or the interesting thing or the maddening thing <laughs> when it comes to what we do is you're not going to be everybody's cup of tea. I got plenty of people that think I'm horrible, awful, disgusting. Can't believe you said that. Happens. I get a lot of people that say, that was awesome. I can't believe you said that that way. Um, but some people love Stalter. Some people love Ron. Some people can't. Hey, you know, it, it is what it is. That's why we have a lot of different voices around here. So you can figure them all out. What's your crutch, Jamie? I, I don't know yet. I mean, a text line can help us. I'm start I don't listening know. for it. Yeah, did you, did you guys pick up on anything? I don't I, think so. I think I mean my biggest crutch is probably just being a genius overall. I yeah, mean that's I would kind say of a, that. it's, yeah. No. Uh, you know what? Sure, <laughs> delivering <laughs> great content every day. Pretty yeah. sure it's crutch is confidence. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, it is. <laughs> An ego. That's your crutch. <laughs> Former blue superstar Jamie Rivers and Alex Ferrario. Oh, that's Brandon Kylie. <laughs> 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 I was going to mention last week, though. I was like, yeah, you, you got to church that up a little bit. Oh, former Blue, he well, played defense. <laughs> do you know the backstory on it? up a little bit. you know the backstory on no. it? No. Okay, so I won't get into the guy's name, but we play a commercial, an ad on here. It's for a great cause for veterans that have PTS now yeah. and all that stuff. Well, they intro the guy who's doing the read. He plays in the NHL, and the intro is NHL superstar so-and-so. And I'm like, well, huh, I've seen this guy play. I, if he's an NHL superstar, then I need to be introduced as a former NHL superstar. That's great. It's fair, right? <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> and when you're selling you know a product, what? you always hype them up to superstar. You guys are the best. I'm looking forward to the fast lane today. That's coming up 2 to 6 right here on 101 ESPN. You have been listening to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN.